Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to get started um, on M Relay. It's a, uh, a big day. So, um, good morning. My name is Robert Buckingham. Um, I'm the creative director of the of M Pavilion. Um, and as you know, M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation. Um, this is our second pavilion and our second M Relay. Um, Today we launched a, a wonderful new book on the history of these gardens uh, by Gina uh, Levenspiel, which in a way talks about the many stories that make up um, the history of a place. Um, today is going to be about stories, about discussions, and of course it reminds us that this site of course has been um, the site of, of, of meetings and storytelling for uh, genera many generations, of course before uh, Melbourne was ever established. Um, so it's part of that continuum. Um, we'd obviously like to pay our respects to the original inhabitants, the Boonarong people. Uh, we say Waminjika, or welcome, and pay our respects to their elders past, present, and into the future. Today's M Pavilion, um, of course, is, is today's event is M Relay, um, which is our 12-hour talk fest. Um, M Relay was devised um, by our creative associate, Natalie King, uh, last year. Uh, it was her idea. It's fast and inspirational. Uh, the relay, it's a relay of ideas, which is fitting because, of course, Naomi always imagined M Pavilion as a container for ideas. The plan is four hosts, four topics, um, 32 speakers, uh, and each speaker has the chance to ask 15 minutes of questions um, of their relay partner, and then in turn, um, they uh, they, uh, the, the situation is reversed and they become the interviewee. Um, we're going to be very quick, so I'd like to thank, of course, Alexander, Alexander Zarethru, who organised today and has coordinated this year's M Relay, done an amazing job uh, coordinating the 30, 32 speakers um, from diverse backgrounds. Um, she's also uh, been supported by Jessie French, our wonderful program manager, Charlotte Day, and Katie is in charge of technical matters today. Um, and I think Alexandra is in charge of timekeeping. So, to keep it uh, uh, going, fast and furious, um, let's get started. And our first host is architect Simon Knott. Thank you, Simon. Uh, thank you, and, uh, and welcome. Um, and I think it's worth just uh, reflecting on that um, acknowledgement to the Indigenous um, custodians of this land and what this place might have been. And, uh, and timely, we've got Gina Levenspiel's fantastic book here uh, that really looks at what this place was before, um, it, before it became a park. And this was, in fact, a billabong, an extension of the river, and would have been an amazing habitat and fantastic food source for the local population. People would have uh, camped here on the banks of this billabong. Um, and it really was uh, a place where these people existed over a long period of time. So I think you can use that as a, a kind of extension of um, what we think of for the word habitat, what that means. Uh, it comes from a Latin word, uh, habitat or habitare, that is to dwell. Uh, so I don't think it means many things to many people and obviously that's what we'll be sort of uncovering today and thinking about what is uh, habitat, uh, what it is for uh, not only for people but for um, fauna and flora uh, to exist and what are the things that go to make a sense of place uh, and a sense of identity for us. So there'll be lots of questions around that. We've got some wonderful guests, um, hopefully 
lot of you will stay right throughout. It goes till 10.30 tonight or something. So it's not just a relay, it's a marathon, but uh, one that's well worth it. And I'm sure there'll be lots of really interesting ideas and, um, and ruminations sort of thought through today. Um, I just wanted to... Um, talk a little bit about this and sort of and I think you know this is a really good example this pavilion about the kind of idea of habitat and what it might mean beyond a notion of shelter so um, at its most basic form and, and the wonderful architect Amanda Levite uh, she used to be from Future Systems they were one of my favorite architects uh, studying her and Jan Kaplicki I think seminal architects through the 80s and 90s um, and a wonderful designer and at its most basic sort of form this could be just a shelter and you know you need to ask yourself the question why isn't it just a whole lot of treated pine posts with a bit of a corrugated iron roof because that would have functioned just as well as this wonderful structure we have here but it's much more than that and it's much more the, the countless hours of human endeavour that actually go into fabricating to designing something like this working with Molcam the fabricators to deliver something like this so getting it built here on the site uh, so why is this thing much more than just a shelter? What is it that makes this place what it is? And why do we bother to do that as human beings? Uh, and then beyond that, beyond the idea of it's just its pure function, is what this what this place does to um, host all these cultural events. And I think, you know, really, you know, the great success of this place... Uh, thank you, Mr Go-Get over there. Might get that off in a sec. But um, just... Uh, what makes these places much more than the sort of practical place? I mean, in some senses, this could be just another rotunda out in the gardens and a place where someone comes and has a picnic or brings their kids. Um, but it actually is a whole series of events that actually that occur over over months. And it's built upon the last year, the first year of its, uh, of, of its inception, and gathers momentum. So this place becomes, over time, something much more than that. And it's that cultural imperative. It's those, it's those investigations of ideas, those talks, that gathering space that give this place much, much more and uh, meaning than just a, than a place, a practical place of shelter. Um, and it does, uh, my partner was here yesterday at an all-day event when it was raining all day. It does actually work very well as a, as a place of shelter as well. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it does, the proof does perform. Um, I was, I was lucky enough recently just to uh, spend my holidays in, in the tropics in Vanuatu on an extended family holiday. And uh, it's a very, it's a very poor place there. Uh, people that live um, very much hand to mouth. And when you go out to the villages there and you ask the people, uh, what they, you know, what they do, they sort of look at you with a sort of slightly puzzled expression because really what they do is just exist. You know, they grow food to eat, they fish, they forage for food, um, they have their family there and they have a, a hut or a house to live in and they don't do much more than that. So the idea of doing things um, is a little bit foreign to them. But, but there is much more than that to what they do. Uh, they don't just exist. When you look at the huts that they have, they have this incredibly intricate pattern weavings that go across them. They're incredibly beautiful. Uh, they're made from the local grasses, but someone's actually gone to the trouble of doing that. And that's, I guess there's sort of questions we're going to ask today is they have stories, they have songs, they have places of gathering, they have family, they have culture, they have this wonderful kind of art uh, that exists on their, on their shelters. So why does that all happen? Why does that exist? And um, hopefully we'll get to the bottom of that pretty soon. Um, just so you know, people who don't understand the format today, we're going to have, there's a series of speakers. Uh, I do this little bit of an introduction, then we're going to have our first uh, guest, Naomi Milgram, who's the, the founder of M Pavilion, uh, the instigator behind it. Uh, I'm going to interview her for 15 minutes, then she's going to interview the next guest, and they'll uh, flip-flop along through the, through the day uh, until we get to some idea of what uh, this idea of habitat is. So um, I am going to...
introduce uh, Naomi Naomi Milgram. Uh, I did have a little thing to sort of. She's the she's the uh, she's the latest. She's the commissioner of the uh, of the 2017, the new commissioner of the 2017 Venice Biennale, uh, Venice Pavilion, Venice yeah. Biennale, Australian yeah. Pavilion. Um, but also the instigator, the the um, the impetus behind M Pavilion, and um, and a whole host of other things in Melbourne, a retailer, uh, a philanthropist, um, a great contributor to the arts. So um, just, there's going to be two questions that everybody asks uh, throughout the day, uh, throughout this session anyway, that just keeps some consistency through it. Um, the first one is, what does Habitat mean to you? And the second one will be, how do our future decisions play out when it comes to Habitat? So, Naomi, welcome. And I'm going to ask you first, what, what does Habitat mean to you? Do I have to answer? Yes. Uh, okay. You set this up. <laughs> I'm not used to that. Um, I guess it goes back a long way for me um, talking about habitat. I'm very affected by my environment. I get incredibly upset if I don't feel comfortable in my environment. Um, I get very upset when I don't have windows in my environment. I get very upset when I can't see gardens or feel the air. Habitat for me is a very emotional starts by being very emotional for me. Um, so when I think about habitat, I think about all the places that I am all the time and whether it's when I'm travelling or whether it's whether I'm at work or whether it's when I'm walking around or whether I'm at home, it's something that um, spiritually has to feel right for me to feel actually happy and comfortable. Um, so it's not about a place for me, it's actually about an emotion. Well, I, I, to that end, you've you've had you know good architecture around you your whole life. I mean, your parents uh, invested in good architecture. Uh, in That's their, a matter of opinion. Well, yes. <laughs> well, you, well, you've employed employed architects to design the spaces that uh, both your families lived in, the place that you work in, um, and you know I think you know well Tarawara is a great example of that of just really good architects doing some quite some quite radical buildings at times. And I think you know the house there um, is 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 really quite a radical building. I just wonder, you know, and obviously you have an interest in design and architects and what role... I think I taught them, actually. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, what does, you know, what does design and architecture play in creating that, that habitat? Why do we need architects and why, what, what, what role does design play in achieving that sort of emotional kind of environment? Well, I think the, the idea of design is exactly the same for me. It's a very emotive issue and what I think is misunderstood is that everything is designed. It's whether it's the fork that you eat with or the spoon or the plate or the toaster, every single item is designed and some things feel very comfortable when you look at them or when you hold them or whether when you place them near you and you actually don't understand why. It, it's just that it, it fits your hand in the right way. I mean, even toilet seats, toilet brushes, everything that you do, uh, everything is designed around you. So it, it, it's not about something beautifully designed. It's actually about the fact that everything is designed and it, it makes you feel good or it doesn't. I mean, you, it's very hard to say what's good design or what's bad design. Yeah, sometimes it does come down to intuitive sort of response, doesn't yeah. it, at some level. I just wonder if, so, uh, say for your offices, you use Derbeck Block, I believe, to, to I design. Did, yes. well, I think you're probably one of Australia's finest architects and, and uh, really you know, do extraordinary work across a number of different uh, scales and, and typologies. Yep. Why did you select them? And how, you know, how did you go through that process and what okay. actually drew you to them? 
Um, well, the office was actually three old warehouses in one building built in the 80s in the old Rosella complex, which sits right along the Yarra River and nestled between the freeway, the river and the gardens on the other side. And it's a very, very specific hidden spot, hidden part of Melbourne called Cremorne, which I actually thought was in Sydney originally. <laughs> Didn't understand that it meant it was this tiny area of Richmond. Um, and I'd always admired it because when you drive along the freeway, you always look that way because of the smell of the Rosella factories always there. Um, so I'd always admired that little closeted area. And when I, that building became available, it was these three old warehouses um, that had been run by the Palmer business, which was Jag, Denim. It was very much a um, retailing area there. Um, and I thought it would be the perfect building um, for a retail business. So when I looked at the three buildings, I said, I'll have to find an architect who can connect these in some way. But then it was more about how we could sit within that environment and how we could add more to the parkland, how we could add more to the water, how we could use that environment to build a beautiful building. So I chose four architects, one from Queensland, one from Sydney, two from Melbourne, and I met with them on site, I briefed them, and I said, I do not want you to come back to me with a building. Right. I have no sense of what I need here. I need 80,000 square feet, but it's irrelevant to me. I don't want a build. I don't want you to come back to me with a building. I want you to come back to me with an emotion. So Durback Block came back to me with a, <laughs> a rectangle with a heart in the middle, <laughs> which actually won me over straight away. And the building, um, so exactly, has it come exactly out as, as that original plan. <clears throat> Fantastic. Um, so it was a very different way to execute. And Durback Block, as you said, are a wonderful firm, but they'd actually never done a commercial building. And this is a big site, 80,000 square feet. It's a reasonably big site. Um, and they'd only done small residential, which they'd won many awards for, as you know. Um, so it was a huge undertaking for them to do this. But I had complete faith that they could manage because they had such a wonderful response to my brief. And do you think that's a, that's, that is an intuitive response from them? I mean, there's obviously a lot of understanding that has to go in place and pragmatics of understanding your organisation and how they're going to operate and all that sort of stuff. But do you think, I mean, ultimately the heart of what actually makes it you know, special for you or, or you know, a good piece of design is, is something else? Well, I mean, they obviously did have to be practical, but Neil's design for how we would actually house garments and work actually never happened because that was just some sort of putting one garment on a hanger um, and that was it, whereas we deal with thousands and thousands. So we did need storage room and things yeah. that Neil never designed into it in the beginning. But I, you know, I was very clear about what I wanted. So I wanted everybody to be able to have great light. I wanted to have a garden through the middle of it. I wanted um, it to be communal, so it had a, a huge kitchen where we eat every day. So that I was very specific in um, my briefing as well. So I think that... Um, enabled us to work together extremely well. I'd love to know what the other arch architects came up with in the initial, but I won't, we won't go into that right no, now. No, we won't. Um, so, uh, just on that... One said no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Wasn't interested. Um, continue on from that. So, when, when you... When the 
M Pavilion is looking to commission the next one. I believe we're, the next one's going to be announced. The, the architect that's going to be announced next week. Yeah. Um, how? What things do you look for there? I mean, is there a process of interviewing architects? Do you do a shortlist? I mean, is there a sort of design that comes up, or is it sort of? Uh, did you have a committee that goes to, to advises you on that, or? Um, it's it's more around the thinking of what I, we think the community will benefit from. Um, one of we're very closely connected to all the universities, so we think about that a lot. Where will they get the best educational value as well? Mm -hmm. um, Sean Godsell, as you know, did the first one, and um, that worked out as great success. All the universities were involved with that as well. I then. Uh, felt that it was important to go to an international architect and I'd seen Amanda's work because of Selfridges and all the retail she'd done because of where I come from and she'd actually come to the Melbourne Fashion Festival with Robin and I. So um, I, I'm, we're always looking for reasons why. It's not just a loose connection. Um, the next one comes from a in very interesting part of the world which we won't disclose until I don't know, Monday no. week. <laughs> I hope you don't know. Till it's supposed to be the best kept secret. Um, till Monday week. And um, I, I think it'll uh, resonate as well and be very, very different from this. Well, I mean, it's great to see the, the evolution of them because this is very different from Sean's. They've both been very successful. And I think you know, the connection here with the garden is extraordinary. I've been here many times during the day and it always seems to work well no matter what's going on here so it's a, it's a fantastic response. Well one of the reasons why it worked so well was because we took the earth from underneath and Sean actually designed these two sort of amphitheatre like hills so that um, we could also work from the inside out and the outside in which was always our intention so that we have had events inside where people actually crowd on the outside. Mm, yeah, people always gravitate to those yeah. little hills there, don't they? Yeah. Um, I just want to go to talk a little bit about the retail environment. And you come from, obviously, a large family of retailers, um, and now yourself, you, you run a very successful retail business. Um, in what has been an extremely testing time for retailers, it's been mm -hmm. you know very difficult last decade or so. Um, yeah, and I think you know retail space and shopping centres are sort of much maligned. I think you know quite often maligned in our society and, and thought of as sort of second-rate spaces, but they're in fact some of the most uh, the most used spaces in people's lives and some of the best privately owned social spaces in the world. And so I just wanted to you know talk a little bit about you know they're, they're heavily curated environments. Mm -hmm. um, they are habitats in themselves. So yeah. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of you know what makes good retail space and you know, and how that's going to evolve in the future beyond the idea of the transaction. Well, I think it's already evolved way beyond the idea of the transaction already. I mean, you can see some very good examples of how shopping centres had to turn by necessity into community environments. I mean, if you think of the evolution of shopping centres where you had, and this is all over the world, where you had um, two anchors, both large big boxes. In our case, they were always shopping always Myers and David Jones at either end and that what connected them was a line of specialty environments. So there may be 50 stores on either side that connected them. So that's the way shopping centres started with big boxes on either end and specialty in the middle. Well, in actual fact, the growth of shopping centres in scale has actually turned the shopping centre into specialty environment. Mm. So the department stores have actually waned in that environment considerably because they actually made every store a specialty store, which took away from what the shopping centre actually had with their department stores. And of course, food has become the biggest offering at the moment. So food has actually drawn this community spirit very, very quickly because food is a good, great, as we'll talk to Andrew, food is a great congregator. 
So they actually have turned themselves out of necessity into congregation spaces to draw crowds. Well, they become mini cities, don't they? Little, yeah. little villages in their own right. I mean, I think you can see that at the Emporium where, you know, yeah. you've got people like George Columbaris in the food court there and those kind of, you know, yeah. restaurateurs actually, you know, it's not the sort of crappy little space it used to be. No, and they will evolve more and more. I mean, Chadston's already building a hotel, office... Um, so they will evolve more and more into little cities as well because the community doesn't actually only want to shop now. Shopping has become a different sort of idea. So it's a critical, it's the idea of the social, isn't it, yeah. in that, within yeah. that? Yeah, um, Sort of, I think we're going to... I don't want to go on too long, although I could. Um, don't worry, we can take this as long as we like. <laughs> They're not going to move us on. <laughs> no, they're not going to move you on, no. I mean, no. Um, uh, you, you've had... Um, I just sort of, I mean, I think there's no accident that this sits where it does opposite, you know, opposite the NGV and you've yeah. had art around you your whole life. You've been, you know, a fantastic patron of the arts and not just the visual arts, the performing arts of the whole arts world in, um, in Melbourne. And you're now the, you know, the brand new commissioner for the Australian Pavilion in, in Venice. We've got Tracy Moffat, Indigenous artist, you know, kicking that off and a wonderful new pavilion there by DCM. I just wanted to talk about, you know, why is it, why is it so important that we have art now? Well, this is, I think this is a crucial question to the kind of idea of habitat and what takes it beyond the sort of just the pure function of, of dwelling. Why is it important to have these, this cultural life, you know, this arts life? Why is that so important to us as, as you know, Melburnians, as, as people? I just think it feeds our soul, feeds our spirit. I mean, what else makes you get up in the morning? going for a walk in a park, listening to the birds, looking at beautiful pictures, looking at this architecture. What what other reason is there to get up in the morning? Yeah, well, that's a good answer. Um, and I think I've got to ask this last question because it's part of this. Um, you know, how do our future decisions play out when it comes to habitat? You know, what do you think are the, are the critical things in, in, in the way we might sort of move forward? I think we have to be less commercially focused and more humanity focused. I mean, I, I just feel very strongly that the way developments are going now, they are not focused on humanity and what humanity will need in the future. Barangaroo, for me, is uh, in Sydney, is one of the biggest wastes we've ever, ever committed. It should have been a central park in the middle of Sydney and now we have a casino and huge metropolis there. Yeah, I can't. I can't agree more. I think the idea of you know, I think habitat has to come down to the idea of people rather humanity. than humanity. Like, it's not about returns and developers. Um, well, thank you for that, Naomi. Are you going to stay here um, on stage, or maybe swap seats? With I'll me? probably swap seats. Um, and I'm going to invite. Well, this is uh, probably needs no introduction. Uh, certainly not for his food. Um, I think I've personally kept uh, him in business over the last decade or Haven't so. Haven't we all? Some of uh, <laughs> some of my other favourite restaurants. Um, Andrew McConnell. Um, uh, please come to the stage. I'll sit. I'll stay here. You happy to stay here? Yeah. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. And tell me, what does habitat mean to you? I've instructed that that's my first question. It's um. It's been an interesting uh, week dwelling about uh, the question of habitat, um, and you know I do agree with you in um, in the sense that it is an emotional space, it's an, an emotional place for me. Um, it's about time and place, and I often think about my habitat now in context to w what my habitat was a year ago and what it would be in a year's time. And I also believe that the habitat is um, never 
static. For me, it's always a space that's evolving um, through the people who live in the space or use the space. Mm. Um, and it's also a space that changes through our own ideas and our own likes, dislikes and aesthetics. It's quite different. I have two very distinct habitats in my life. My, my home habitat, which is shared with five other people, four of them are young children, and then my working environment or habitat, which is a very different world, which I think I'm quite lucky to have these two quite dynamic environments. Talk about your work environment and how that affects you. I've been um, quite fortunate or blessed to um, be in the position where I can have an idea or a vision and create with with designers and architects uh, habitats um, for the public or people who would like to use them, um, but also for myself, habitats that I like to work in and would like to create in. Um, and also environments for my staff uh, to have a, uh, a space that's not just open, that's not functional, but also a creative space that um, enhances creativity and ideas and collaboration. But how does that work? My image of what a kitchen's like is Gordon Ramsay on TV. Gordon Ramsay makes good television <laughs> these days. So your kitchens aren't like that? No, I think, um, I think people... Uh, work best in environments that are a little bit more thoughtful. I'm um, sure that <laughs> Possibly more inclusive and less aggressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So how does your kitchen run then? I have now, having multiple venues, um, work across um, many different kitchens, um, offering many different products to different levels of the market, whether it be a relaxed you know, cup of coffee and cake or a six-course dinner or a quick snack on the run. So uh, the way the, my kitchen's run is purely based on collaboration now with head chefs and management in, in each venue. And do you go from each venue to venue all during the day or uh, how not, do you manage that? Not each day. It depends on happen, what happens from, from week to week. But I really try to touch base um, within two venues each day. I think it's important that I have a lot of young chefs who have come to work with me and train with me and um, have, uh, you know, graced me with a, a lot of dedication. Mm. Um, and it's important that um, I can spend some time with a lot of these young people um, in a mentoring position and not necessarily in, in a very old-fashioned way of walking into a kitchen and handing out recipes and saying, now cook this. It's, it's a very different approach mm. now. So I'm glad you wouldn't tell me, cook this. <laughs> tell me about the difference in your home habitat then. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the home habitat is um, something that I suppose changes as we, as, as we grow and as children grow and we develop. You know, I think you know, a home habitat has to be a safe place. Um, it also has to be, more importantly, um, a, a place of learning as well as joy and all these other things that we want in life. Mm. I think that, um, you know, where we, where we live now, we live in a Victorian house, which was lived, um, which was 
house a family for almost 40 years. And it's been interesting moving into a house that has never really been renovated since it was built in 1880. Oh, wow. And how through colour and our own tastes and how we move and cook and socialise has influenced um, that evolution. It's been, you know, quite a, a fascinating and, and fun experience. And how much of a role does architecture and design play in your business? It plays a role in, in every level. I think um, I, I enjoy the design process. Uh, I enjoy the, the communication and I suppose sharing that vision and coming to this um, certain point. Um, and for me, the key brief to all, all of the designers I've worked with has always been um, about uh, the people first who'll be using the space, um, how they'll feel in the space, and the, um, the, the, the timeless approach to design is, is really important to me. And why doesn't everybody think the same way? Do you think it's a, an issue of commerce? What are the drivers that make you different? I think um, everyone's priorities are different. Commerce is um, is a part of it, obviously. Um, however, a lot of people are in my industry for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy and love this industry. Therefore, it's every decision and design decision I make is, is a long-term decision. Um, it's not about a fast buck and getting you know a sharp design up quickly and incredibly fashionable. It has to um, uh, go beyond that, uh, beyond what's happening now. But designing restaurants is a, is a big commitment, isn't it? It is. Um, it's been interesting over the last 15 years since I've owned and worked and lived in Melbourne, um, watching people, um, not in a creepy way, but observing, <laughs> observing people and how how people um, use and how they have um, changed how they use restaurants over the years. Yeah. Um, from, 10 years ago, way, yeah. from, from 10 years ago, from 10 years ago, watching people come to the city for that special occasion, that special dinner. Now people are living in the city and using a restaurant or a cafe or a bistro every single day. Yes. And in... And it has become that community space that it wasn't before. It was much more of an isolated. Sharing tables are really important. Sharing food is really important. Mm. I think one of my, one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, creating Cumulus as a space that people could use how they wish. Yeah. Without too many rules, because I hate rules. I hate being told I can't have something at a certain time of day. And um, creating a space where people have understood our direction and the brief and responded to that and used it how it was intended. And in eight years, really, it hasn't really had to change or evolve too much. I think people have uh, taken this and now own this space, yeah, yeah. which has been um, you know, incredibly rewarding. And what do you think about the city of Melbourne as a habitat? I think Melbourne's one of the most ex exciting cities to live in right now, anywhere in the world. And I think... Um, on many levels, uh, I think, you know, as far as a design city is concerned, um, the people who make that happen is, is the city. And um, you can look all around us. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, 
incredibly relevant design on which just doesn't sit here nationally but on the international scale yeah and you sort of feel like it's naturally evolved. You don't feel like it's forced, whereas in a lot of other places you do. No, it's, it's not a pop-up. It's, it's a very thoughtful, um, considered um, kind of process. Yeah, or a swim-up, as I've been told. Yeah. Which, which, which is um, the only way I can really work. Yes, I know. But we are very blessed with a lot of gardens, with the river. Mm. So I, I think that you know, we, we've cared for it. And if you read Gina's book you'll see how cared for these gardens were from the very beginning, even though they were started off as the swamps, obviously. Um, but the gardens do give us a completely different feel, don't they? Yeah. I mean, the connection to... I mean, gardens can only make you smile. Yeah. My therapy now is um, 15 minutes in the vegetable patch with a coffee in the morning. Oh, tell us about your vegetable patch. Well, um, you know, I think... Well, I think for myself as a chef and many chefs, we have a, a great affinity and connection to environment and um, I think the, over the last year I've invested in kind of built a more serious vegetable patch and it's it's more of a vegetable patch where I experiment with various different herbs and vegetables that I can't usually buy commercially mm-hmm. so it's that's been a great learning curve and I never thought I could grow anything but with um, some time and um, research it's it's really given me incredible inspiration and experimentation capacity mm. which is obviously important to the creative process for you too yeah. as it is for everybody and in time we've introduced different um, elements to our restaurants and introduced new recipes and ideas which has actually been a wonderful process to go from an idea from a seed shop pack of the seeds over a 12-month period and now is actually active where we are looking and developing recipes and experimenting and seeing the finished product a year later um, on the plate, which is, um, again, an, another sense of process um, that is incredibly uh, stimulating. Yeah, I knew I was doing something wrong. I'm starting with the seedlings, not with the seeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's not cheating. Yeah, it is cheating, I think. I think it is. I mean, what do you think of Amanda's pavilion? I love the pavilion. I, I think the scale is quite, quite special. I mean, it's a, another canopy, you know, that relates beautifully to these trees, the plane trees around us. Um, but what I, what I enjoy is I've been here a few times, and this morning how the, the water that has pulled yeah. in certain places has dappled the light a little bit. Yeah. I, I love the fact that it's different this time to last time. But it's actually um, not something we see. We see it more up north, but actually seeing a structure or a habitat that is so open, we don't often see that in Melbourne. I think people are concerned, and we were very concerned in the beginning too, that the sun would be too aggressive in this space. But Mm. in actual fact, it's um, been very beautiful and these have actually added... uh, almost like an umbrella-like feeling to it. And as Simon said, the shingles have actually... Oh, thanks. Um, the shingles have actually protected us, so it has actually worked as like an old-fashioned shingled roof. Mm. Um, so we've actually been protected. Mm. No, I, I'm surprised by the, um, the light quality as well. I thought I'd need sunglasses today if it was sunny, but it's, it's, it's Yeah, it's it beautiful. is very beautiful. It's worked incredibly well as a community space, so mm. we've been really happy with the way 
that's worked. And most people have referred to its openness versus Sean's closed down nature. Mm. Even though Sean's actually lifted up, mm. most people saw it as a, a box or a closed space. Mm. No, I think it's um, quite a fascinating experience going coming to Sean's last year and entering into this space mm. um, and that transition and how different and how they how successful they've been on different levels. I really mm. love the way Amanda's brought the plants in. That, that we've taken Paul Bangays and moved them into the pavilion with these rhomboids all the way around. I think that's sort of added to the habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's one thing I've um, been exploring more of is in my own habitat, particularly at home, is plants inside and living closer oh, okay. to plants. So I'm really enjoying it. And how are you finding that? Um, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And I think um, the, the children enjoy it. But there's something about um, waking up and feeding yourself and then turning around and feeding a plant at the same time. You know, you're thinking more about the environment um, and, you know, not just keeping yourself alive, but, you know, the, the plants. And they also bring colour and shape and form that is, again, not static. It's always changing. Yeah. Mm. It's a great pleasure to have you, Andrew. Good to Thank be here. Thank you very much. Thanks. And I... <laughs> I could sort of feel someone breathing. Um, yes, good timing. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Naomi. Um, and look, I agree uh, with Cumulus. I think it's one of the um, I think it's one of the great sort of sharing spaces, community spaces in the city. It's one of my favourite restaurants and I think, um, you know, you, you can go there any time of the day um, and you can enjoy, you know, a meal there on your, by yourself or with your extended family and feel just as comfortable. So a very deft hand too in the design of that space. It's a, um, it's a lesson in subtlety. Um, so uh, I'd like to uh, invite our next guest to the stage, um, who's the president and creative director of Schoolhouse Studios, um, and that's Alice Glenn. And she's actually also um, my partner. Coincidentally, is uh, has an exhibition in her uh, gallery starting next week, Ty Snaith. So um, those can get along and see that. Uh, she's also um, she's also a mother at the same uh, at the same school. Our, our childs are both our children are both about to start in on Monday. So. Um, Welcome, uh, Alice. Thank you. Great. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> well, I suppose we should start with um, that question. What does Habitat Excellent. mean to you? Um, so I feel rather unqualified to be talking about design and architecture, but uh, the two businesses that I run are very much about creating habitats for communities, creating, bringing people together um, to share um, ideas and, uh, yeah, so I run Schoolhouse Studios, which was mentioned, which is um, artist studios down in Collingwood where we have around 100 artists working out of an old textile factory. Um, And we have a really diverse community of people working in lots of different um, mediums and the space that we create provides an opportunity for those artists to collaborate and um, yeah, collaborate outside their own medium and yeah, share ideas and um, yeah. I was reading um, about the schoolhouse and one thing I noticed that um, the consideration of the design was, um, was it designed for the future? It was, yeah. yes. So the... Um, the lease that we have on the building is um, for about five years. So when designing um, the fit-out, we had to make sure we weren't 
putting money down the drain and the whole fit out is uh, it's modular and can come apart and come with us to our next site um, yeah it's a we were really lucky we've we raised about fifty thousand dollars through crowdfunding to build the a very modest fit out that was um, designed by two young architects with lots of people who came on board to help us um, either volunteer their time or you know produce work at cost price and yeah that's great because you've moved once already yeah originally we um, we opened at the old Sophia Mundi Steiner school down in Abbotsford um, yeah we really set out just to find a small place for about five or five to ten people but um, when we found out that the Steiner school was no longer in use we um, put in a submission and took over Firstly, one half of the building, and then as the Steiner School moved over to the convent, we took over the second building, ended up with about 100 artists working out of there. Mm. Yeah, and then we, we were evicted from that site and, um, yeah, moved to Collingwood two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose in context of Melbourne, you know, what is your favourite or ideal place or environment or, or mm. habitat? My favourite habitat. I feel like, um, for me, it's probably the gardens. I spend a lot of time at the Edinburgh Gardens on a sunny day. I feel like most people I know flock to that sort of environment where, um, yeah, you feel comfortable to be um, yeah, pretty relaxed, to BYO everything, you can make it what it needs to be for you at the time. and. Um, yeah, generally where there's lots of people. I like surrounding myself with community and, yeah. I want to ask you um, something about um, No Lights, No Lycra that yep. you uh, co-established in 2009. Yep, that's right. About um, seven years ago, six yeah, years ago, yeah. Six years, which is now, um, I suppose, a global dance community. Yep. And um, to me, I'm fascinated with the idea and it actually really appeals to me because here you've given people the... Uh, the opportunity to ex, um, ex, express themselves, um, which is uh, with really, really no boundaries, uh, which is quite a profound thing to do. Yeah. How has it affected you and uh, the people who, you know, come to? Yeah. Well, myself and Heidi, who started No Lights, um, came up with the idea because we'd been studying dance for years and you know, after going to lots of classes and dancing in front of mirrors and constantly questioning the way you look, we felt like we'd lost the essence and joy of um, movement. So for us, it was about turning off the lights, playing fun, you know, daggy music that we just made us want to dance and letting loose and getting back to that sort of, um, you know, that feeling that you have, you know, that urge to dance basically. And so we just started it um, for ourselves and it quickly became obvious that there were lots of people who also were craving the same space. Um, we now have 70 communities internationally and there's six running in Melbourne and we get amazing feedback from people um, saying that they've, you know, they've come to No Lights and danced through really hard times in their lives you know a lot of people say it's it's been um, of great benefit um, or it's helped them through mental illness depression anxiety so yeah it's 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 a pretty powerful very simple idea but it's been a very powerful um, 
space for people. It's oh, incredible. And how did it um, spread internationally? Um, it really sp it spread because I had a friend of mine who was living in New York who came to Melbourne for the summer, fell in love with no lights, and then took it back to Brooklyn. Um, and it was took off in Brooklyn. We got written up in the New York Times, and that was sort of the beginning of the you know the spread really um yeah it's always spread through word of mouth i think people can often be reluctant to go at first dancing in the dark sounds slightly you know unusual and um but once once you come along and you understand what it's about i think it's pretty addictive and mm. yeah when i was um growing up uh, my habitat um really kind of informed and influenced me to where I am now because a lot of what, how I uh, socialised um, with my family and family friends was around the table, was around food. Um, how did you come to creating these quite unique habitats being schoolhouse and no lights? Did, did anything through your upbringing or your background direct you or form you in any way like that? Yeah, I definitely sympathise with what you're saying. Um, my family sat around the dinner table every night to eat dinner and um, a very tight immediate family and extended family that's very large. So I feel like that was probably the beginning of that sense of, you know, community for me. Um, I then went on to work in the film industry after university and um, I loved the way a film set works, that everybody, you know, there's so many people are working towards a common goal and everybody's role is important, you know, even the guy who shows up at 5am with a coffee cart, if he's not there, mm. the whole thing falls apart during the day. So, um, and then in terms of starting Schoolhouse, I, I had a, um, my son Otis was born in 2010 and I didn't have any other friends with children and I, you know, Became, felt quite isolated. Um, most of my friends were off, you know, pursuing creative careers and being very social and I was I felt, yeah, stuck at home. So initially it was, it was a chance for me to bring people to me, really, create an environment where I felt supported as a creative and as a young mother as well, yeah. I was reading there's a cafe at Schoolhouse as well. There is, yeah. Is that yeah. open to the public? Can anyone it is, yeah. It's cool. run by um, Raf, who's sitting over there. It's called Tiggy. It's open Monday to Friday. And it's really the the beating heart of Schoolhouse, really. Um, it's, it's yeah, it's been an amazing... Um, it's created a big difference between the, the previous Schoolhouse site where residents could really come and go and never interact. You know, it was mm -hmm. such a huge site, sprawling... Um, garden and but the new schoolhouse is intimate and small and there's a cafe so everybody sort of gets forced to meet and interact and yeah and the cafe's the main vehicle for that. When you moved to this site which was a lot larger um, are you happy with I mean are people it sounds like but are people using the space how you intended is it? Yeah we, we really um, never thought we'd feel like this but it actually works functions a lot more successfully than the previous site for the same reason for reason I just said um, this the old Steiner school was huge we had a massive vegetable garden an orchard a big um, basketball court and 
four or five really large buildings um, and artists could, you know, come and go, they'd never see each other, which was great for some people, but in terms of creating a community, a sense of community and those interactions between people, it wasn't as successful. So when we were designing um, the new schoolhouse, we're obviously confined by, you know, we had very small budget and um, not a lot of time either and resources. So um, we had to come up with something that was simple, smart, but served the purpose of, um, yeah, sort of like a village, really, a small village. And can I ask what's next for you in the schoolhouse? Um, we would really love to get something about an hour out of Melbourne, a country property. Um, Wouldn't we all? Sorry. What, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to be able to provide a retreat for artists in the city and then if we had um, artists in the, you know, rural community who wanted to sort of do timeshare with artists in the city. Yeah, that's that would be a dream. Fantastic. Can I, can I ask you both a question? Sorry to interject, but I, I just... There's something that I thought that was quite interesting between... that you both talked about sort of indirectly and it's both important to what you do. Um, and it's the, the, the kind of idea of light and how important that is to our to our habitat and or lack of uh, yeah. in our kind of understanding of that. And, and enormously, it's not something that's often talked about in sort of restaurants and... and and, and the way that we, you know, we might eat and stuff, but it's incredibly important to those environments and the kind of sense of those. You talked a lot about, you know, about the light here. I just wonder for both of you, you know, how important is that sort of sense of light and or lack of it to the way we kind of uh, interact? Yeah, light's important, absolutely. We have to, you know, it's nice to be able to see our friends, look someone in the eye, um, and it's quality of light is uh, very important um, in public spaces and particularly in a commercial environment. It's something that, um, you know, I'm going to segue here, that's probably talked about more than light quality is sound quality or lack of <laughs> in uh, a lot of restaurants. And I'm, you know, I'm partially to blame for that, perhaps. But it's now, you know, a, f a forefront of my brief is having sufficient, um, you know, ac acoustic consideration in the design. Um, that being said, if you have 150 people drinking alcohol, having a great time in one room, there's not a lot you can do. You can try to treat it, but mm. if someone's having a good time, then we can't completely keep everyone happy, sadly. And yeah. Do you spend a bit of time fine-tuning that sort of light too and the, and the acoustic light? I mean, do, you, do you sort of think about that throughout the night, the, the sort of ambience and the subtlety of that? Yeah, it's, it's, it changes five, six times throughout the night from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m., the lighting, because... You know what, what ambient light enters the the space um, changes that dynamic, and I think it's you know with modern technology it makes it a lot easier now to be able to press buttons and change the environment. Um, but it is something that you know that that progression is really important. It's not always considered. What about you, Alice? I mean, like lack of light. I mean, if anyone's ever been at a party where the lights are on and then suddenly, you know, the music's going and you flick off the lights and everyone starts dancing, I guess you kind of understand, you know, maybe that's where, where the idea came from. Yeah, I'm definitely turning off the lights at most parties. Um, yeah, I think for no lights, definitely turning off the lights is crucial and, you know, the fundamental sort of um, aspect of the concept. But for schoolhouse, light is so important for a lot of visual artists um, and the type of light too for a lot of painters 
um, and illustrators, they want nice south light, you know, not too harsh, just nice sort of diffused light. And then we have people working on screens who can't have too much light. So um, the, des the, pe the guys who designed Schoolhouse um, were very clever in creating lots of different spaces that worked differently with the, we, we have a sawtooth um, roof at the factory and little cabins within the space that have clear roofs so that you can see through through the roof of your cabin up into the um, sawtooth roof and um, that's been a great way of providing yeah light to more people. Yeah, I think there should be more of it. I think the sort of crafting of kind of light design is often mm. thought of as objects rather than actually how light performs in a space and it's enormously important to our, mm. our sense of well being. You know, not just yeah. in not just in creative spaces but in the place where you, where you live. Um, I don't know if you finished there, Andrew. Have you got, that you're done. Yeah, you're, I think you're on. Thank you. Thanks to Andrew McConnell. You're off the hook now, Andrew. Um, and now we're going to swap spots for um, Alice. Here is going to. I'm going to invite uh, Indigenous architect and design expert Ruben Berg uh, to the to the stage. Uh, welcome, Ruben, and um, thanks for joining us. Hello. So I should start with the same question. Mm -hmm. How do you? What is your habitat? What does habitat mean to me? What does it mean to you? Um, I think a lot of people, what we've spoken about so far, uh, resonates with me around what habitat is. But I think something that, to me, habitat is a lot about place and the stories that are attached to that place and how those kind of stories are embedded in place in a not necessarily in a, in a tangible way. That there are just stories that kind of exist within a place that it's about... They, they exist in your mind that you know those stories exist and that influences the habitat that you, that you have around you. Yeah. yeah. So how does the work that you do, how do you feel like design and architecture could be better, um, could better sort of represent Indigenous culture? And Yeah, so I'm, I'm involved in this space as an Aboriginal architect. So I'm a Gunnitsmara man. My family comes from uh, Framlingham, which is down in Warrnambool. And as an architect architectural student looking at what was going on in design, I saw a lot of times people weren't really taking into account the, the deep history of Australia when they were doing design in terms of looking at place and, and the importance of those stories. When people were looking at the history of a site, for instance, they would look at what happened in the last 50 years, what happened in the last 100 years, oh, this used to be a jam factory or this used to be a shed, a shearing shed, and that was what they looked at in terms of trying to draw inspiration from a place. And to me, that was just an untapped resource of looking at the full breadth of the stories that exist within a place, to use that as inspiration for design and a way of recognising that the importance of those sorts of places and those sorts of stories. Can you give us an example of a space that's... Ooh, either a project that you've been working on that, um, or a space in, a, in Melbourne that you think successfully sort of achieves this... Yeah, so I think one of the more recent things we've been involved with is IADV is the relocation of the Courier Heritage Trust, which moved over to Federation Square from over in King Street. And one of the things we first noticed when looking at this project was the building that it's in, which is called the Yarra Building. I think it's because it blocks the Yarra from Federation Square. Uh, and so we recognised that it really didn't connect with the river in any way. And it used, as, to be, it used to be Aberworld, didn't it, or something like that? Yeah, it did. I think it was Aberworld. It was the racing museum as well. Uh, and now it is the location of the Career Heritage Trust. But it really, it, that building turned its back on the river. 
And the river is a very important place for Aboriginal people, for the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung peoples. It's a, it's a key part of the stories of this landscape. Uh, and Birrurung is its traditional name. And the, the, the building really turned its back on that. And we couldn't change too much of the building. We couldn't chop down the walls or do anything like that. But what we wanted to do was highlight the fact that the river was there. So within one of the windows, we've highlighted, the, you know, put blue around the edge to remind us there's water there and put the traditional name of the river there to highlight that's where we are. We are at Burrung uh, as part of that design. So I'd be interested to hear how your background, how your, your parents involved in architecture or how you've come to involve doing what you're doing, basically. Yeah, uh, parents weren't involved in architecture or design. It was really just a love of Lego that got me into, into architecture. I just loved... I loved building things and I realised I didn't really like playing with them once they were finished. Uh, once I built it, I wanted to knock it down and build something else really exciting. And that's, that's what drew me into architecture in the first place. And it wasn't until later on, as I was learning more about architecture and, and place, that I saw the connection between Aboriginal culture and stories and architecture. It wasn't the first thing that drew me to it, but it's one of the things now that we try and use to try and get more Aboriginal people involved because there's... There's very few Aboriginal people involved in architecture. There's only one registered Aboriginal architect here in Victoria, and we think there's only about eight registered Aboriginal architects in all of Australia. And so it's a very small number. And so we're trying to use that connection between culture and design to encourage more young people to get involved in that, in that career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, I, can I ask a question? I just wanted to... Because I know... Um, I mean, I've sort of interviewed him before and spoken to him, and I think you know there was a there was a huge discussion that went on in Melbourne um, when the when the ARM building was done up at um, at the CUB site and the William Barak, uh, it's called the Portrait Building, I think uh, William Barak uh, mural on the facade, and and a lot of the criticism around that, I think there was some Indigenous uh, architects and students were talking about the kind of the idea of image, like that that Indigenous culture always gets represented as, as image rather than perhaps other ways of ways of doing or seeing. I sort of wondered how you saw that building and, you know, what are other ways that we could sort of represent Indigenous culture within, you know, contemporary architecture? Sure. Uh, I think it, it has been a really fascinating project, that, that portrait project, because it has raised so many different levels of conversation. And from my perspective, I think it's really fascinating to think that uh, a developer thought it would be a good idea to put an Aboriginal face on a building. I think that's, that's really amazing that a developer who's probably their key job is they want to try and make money. And I cannot, cannot imagine that 20 years ago they thought, you know, the best way to make money out of this apartment is to put an Aboriginal face on it. So I think it's a really good thing that we're at a spot now where they thought that's actually a positive to people want to engage with Aboriginal culture. I'm not certain that it was the best way to try and do that, that an apartment building having an Aboriginal face is the best thing. If it was a building that was going to be used for Aboriginal people or by Aboriginal people for some specific purpose, it might have been better. Also, I had a few issues with the actual face that's on there, and I know it's an ongoing discussion for the Wurundjeri people and the descendants of Barak, that the face, it's a, it's a really accurate depiction of this sculpture that was done of William Barak, and they've really captured that sculpture really well. I think the sculpture was a very poor likeness of William Barak. And so it ends up just looking like a generic black face. Uh, it's like the $2 coin. And it's not something there that you feel a strong connection to because it doesn't represent that person. Also, there are a lot of people who have concerns around it because it's, it's, it's a depiction of Aboriginality that's very much from the past and kind of ignores the fact that Aboriginal culture is an ongoing thing, that there are contemporary ways of expressing Aboriginality that aren't just locked into a face from the past. And so that... 
there are a lot of complexities around it, but I think it's it's a fantastic thing that it was even considered to be done, and it, it's raised lots of important discussions. So if you were going to represent Indigenous culture in a new building, you were starting from scratch, and you thought, oh, what's the best way to do that, you know, in a particular place? And what would the what would be the things that you would look look to do? So I think that the, the starting point has to be with the place, with the stories that are attached to that place, and finding out what are those stories, what are the, the reminders we might still have on that site. Are there um, evidence of midden on that site? Is there an evidence of artefacts that might still be on part of that site? Are there song lines associated with how that place was used where people would move through that space? Uh, what are those things we might want to look at first and understand? And those things can then inspire how we might want to uh, incorporate that into the design. There's also ideas of looking at talking to the traditional owners from that area. Are there stories of people that are relevant to that place you might be able to celebrate? And then I think it's also about more subtle things of what are the different patterns we can use within the design to reflect Aboriginality? Because pattern is something that's used in all sorts of design ideas. Are there ways of drawing on traditional patterns, local traditional patterns? So I'm not talking about dot paintings. Uh, That's a very specific type of pattern that comes from a very specific area. Here in Victoria, there's more of a tradition of hatching, of um, concentric diamond patterns. How can we kind of use that to reflect a sense of Aboriginality in a place? It doesn't have to be, let's put a giant big Aboriginal flag on it and that makes it an Aboriginal place. I think there are more subtle ways of designing spaces that reflect the places that we're in and not just, well, we're going to design an Aboriginal health centre so it's going to have an Aboriginal flag, but no matter what building you're building, it's on an Aboriginal place. And are there ways of uh, respectfully incorporating a sense of place into those buildings so that Aboriginal people can feel a sense of connection to them? But also, I I think a really important thing is that non-Aboriginal people who live here in Australia have a sense of connection to that culture, that it's not seen as some sort of other. It's something that we can all engage with and have some connection to and some pride in, that this is an amazing place where there's a really rich history here that we can all tap into and, and feel pride in. I was just going to ask, um, sort of answered it there, but um, what sort of advice do you have for architects and designers who want to engage with this process? Yeah, and I think there's a real keenness to want to engage in the process, but a lot of times there's a lot of fear. People aren't sure uh, who to talk to, and they're also scared of doing the wrong thing. There's a lot of fear of, I don't want to get it wrong, I don't want to upset people, and I get those sorts of comments a lot, and my advice when I hear that is, If your aim is to go out there and do something and not upset anyone, you are going to fail dismally. Uh, You will upset people. That's what happens. The Aboriginal community is not one unified community with one single view on everything. There's a whole lot of different people with different views. So the best thing you can do is try and talk to people, a mix of people. Um, And that's... We set ourselves up as IADV to be someone that you come and talk to, that we understand architecture and we understand the Aboriginal community, so we can kind of help you people connect. But yeah, if you do come in there with this sense of we don't want to upset anybody, it's not going to work. You have to understand you're going to try and do something. There are people who might get upset about it, but if you are doing it in a way that is you can back it up, you've got a good reason for why you did that, why you chose this artist, why you chose those patterns, do that and, and that's the best you can do. But ask questions. Ask, try and find the right people. Don't, don't put it off because it's too hard. There are ways of doing it and there are ways of doing it respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you, Reuben, just on, um, there's been, over a long period of time now, a lot of um, thought and, and money being poured into remote communities for Indigenous housing, which, um, I know there's some good work being done by people like Iridale Peterson-Hook in, in WA and around Australia, but but quite often fails miserably. Um, why do you think we get those habitats you know, so drastically wrong? 
and, and what should we be doing to, to make them better? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult question and I, I don't focus too much on remote issues in the work that I do. Uh, I used to do a bit of work on remote housing when I worked up in Queensland, but now living in Victoria my focus is more on kind of urban environments. But when we are looking at remote housing issues, I think there's, there's a lot of complexities around just the very fact of being in a remote place makes things very difficult. It makes things very expensive. It doesn't matter who you are. It's going to be much more expensive to build something in a remote location. I think there's also sometimes... It's a bit of a double-edged sword. There's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between the perceptions of non-Aboriginal people in terms of what might be expected. So there's a, there's a double-edged sword in that Sometimes they just base it on what they would expect and expect that the Aboriginal people are going to be living their lives the same way. But then also there can sometimes be this trying to put on the lens of what it might be for Aboriginal people and design something to potentially accommodate for that when they might want the same thing that non-Aboriginal people have. So you, it's about talking with that specific community on a local level and finding out exactly what those people want, not your understanding of broadly what Aboriginal people might want because... There is no Aboriginal people. There's 365 different groups, and within each of those groups, just like within any group that you're a part of, there's some people who feel this way and some people feel that way. So it's, there's a lot of times it's been this attempt to have one size fits all, and that, that doesn't work. It's the same for any design, isn't it? It's really understanding your client and, and what, you, what, the, what the purpose is of the end, end yeah. result, isn't it? So. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, how do you see the future of, you know, of um, Indigenous culture and European culture sort of existing? You know, what is that going forward here in Melbourne? Yeah, I think I would like to see it more coming together. Um, and I, this is my own personal view. Some Aboriginal people will say they want to see Aboriginal culture as one distinct thing on its own and separate from an Australian culture. To me, I think that's a short-sighted approach that I, I like to think in a thousand years, what's it going to be like? And how do we start moving towards that now? In a thousand years, I think everyone who lives on this place is going to have, I think, a stronger connection to the place as Aboriginal people do. Because from a timeline perspective, we can't understand the difference between 40,000 years and 1,000 years in our heads. We don't understand the difference between that. And so in that amount of time, everyone's going to have that same connection to where we are. So we should start sharing that now, I think, and, and enabling everyone to have a connection to Aboriginal culture and place still doing so in a way that acknowledges that Aboriginal people have uh, ownership of that culture. They should have an, a, a say in what should happen and what shouldn't happen. But that doesn't mean we can't all engage with it and then we can't all uh, celebrate it. And I think that's the way forward in the future. And I think that can be reflected in our habitats. That can be reflected in the ways that we're designing things, the ways that we're incorporating stories into the places that we're designing that aren't just about, as I said, the last 50 years, but are about the full breadth of history that we have. Well, that's a good place to, I think, sort of finish yeah. that up. So, uh, thank you. Thanks, Ruben. Um, uh, and thank you, Alice. Thank you for your time on stage. Um, yes, a round of applause. Uh, now we're going to uh, uh, invite... Uh, sorry, I've lost my spot. Lecturer in, in Culture and Communication, Shepparton's Art Museum Director, Rebecca Coates. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, and welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm delighted to meet you. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling very well. I know your professional, your colleague, in your. Oh, yes. So we work together. We've done some work at the City of Melbourne. So I'm delighted to meet you and, and see the other half. Fabulous. <laughs> uh, so the key thing we're here today to discuss is habitat. Yep. What does habitat mean to you? Well, it it means a lot of things. I think it's a sense of. Um, 
a place, uh, it can be a physical place, it can be a spiritual place, it can be the place that you live in, the place that you work in, the place that inspires you. Um, it can be aspirational, it can be what you hope it might be for now and in the future. Um, it can be a failed space uh -huh. and it can be a space that has potential to grow. So it, it's not a done deal and I think that's what's interesting about it. So what, what makes a failed space then? Um, so I, I was thinking about that. I lived for many years in the UK and um, I was just thinking about the question of light that we heard about earlier. Um, when I got to the UK, uh, you know, the light levels are very different. Everything's facing the wrong way. Um, the architecture that I thought had potential, which was brutalist architecture in England, in the, in the 80s, most people hated. So that was a failed architecture for them, but I thought it had possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, we were living in Oxford, which is very pretty. I actually hated the prettiness of it. But in North Oxford, some enlightened person had built this wonderful brutalist uh, sort of block, all stacked on top of each other, in a 19th century garden. Mm. Um, I thought it was a success because it had big glass windows that looked south. So I went, this is a winner. Uh -huh. They thought it was really bad. <laughs> That's interesting. I, uh, I, had, I dabbled in trying to design a brutalist style building when I was at, yeah. at university. Poured concrete. And, and I had the best piece of feedback I've ever gotten from a piece of work. Because Move on. No, the, no, the, le <laughs> the lecturer said, and I won't fully describe what he said, but he said, needs more FU. Is what it needed. <laughs> uh, and so I spray painted that all over my work as a reminder. If it was going to be brutalist, it needed more... It, had to, it had to have attitude. Yeah. And I think coming from Australia, I, we do attitude really well. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, working in the, the... A lot of Europeans I worked with loved it. You know, you know where you stand. You know you've got a plan, you go for it. And, you know, you're going to rub people up the wrong way sometimes. Yep. But you're doing it because you're passionate about it and you're doing it because you think you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's an interesting way of thinking about how to design a space uh, that, that does what you hope it should do. Yeah, and it has to be very appropriate to the locality of absolutely, where you are. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So I thought Naomi and her team were quite genius putting us together because, as you've just said, I've just recently gone up to Shepparton. Oh. I've been there for four months and working a lot with the um, Indigenous communities there. That's one of the real joys and excitements of my position. And what role does the museum play in a, in a really interesting, complex uh, set of communities, migrant communities, people who don't speak very much English, what role does art and culture play, what role does a museum play? And of course there is a new museum mooted that we are all working incredibly hard for that I think we need to have some sort of Indigenous voice absolutely within from the very get-go. So I thought, golly, they're clever, you know. <laughs> so I'm delighted to be talking to you about this here. Yeah. So you've, you've just moved to Shepparton then? So I've, I've been there for the last four or five months. Uh -huh. um, and over that time, I was acting director. I was also working at Melbourne University. So I've been there for many years teaching in the art history, art history theory and art curatorship uh, um, department. Um, so that was a sort of two jobs in one week, which was a little tricky. I am now there and, you know, in a full and capacious role. And in terms of habitat, would you say that there's a difference in the way people view their idea of habitat from Shepparton compared to here in Melbourne? Well, it's, it's really interesting because Shepparton is one of those, um, I think, rural town stories that, you know, it's... It, um, 
had a bit of a boom period in the 19th century. It had some really interesting vernacular architecture. In the 1970s, it went through a bit of another uh, economic revival. And in the enlightened, you know, city council way, most of it was raised. So when you drive around Shepparton, it's really... Um, I love Shepparton, but it's bloody ugly, you know. And so I think you have to look at, so where is the beauty in this place? And there is. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there's a lot of cream brick. There's a lot of single story. There's a lot of uh, the sort of rural version of your half-acre block, um, which was an aspiration for Australians. And if you think back to last year and we think back to the Australian ugliness conversations that occurred in this spot in the previous uh, pavilion, you know, I think there's a lot of that being played out. However, I think that there are changes and they're very subtle. So when you really look, you see the way that people have engaged with garden, the idea that architecture is, you don't have to just live in the architectural space that you might appropriate for a period of time, that you can make subtle changes and that you can live the life and subvert it a bit in the way that you want to do. So my first experience, when I first got there, I thought, how do I normally introduce myself and have a, spa a place introduced to me and it's through my feet mm. it's through walking it's incredibly hot in Shepherd and you know it's like that central Victoria it's like this it can be the sort of hellhole of hot so you get up very early your time patterns change I get up when it gets light and I'm a walker I you know I've spent a lot of time in these botanic gardens and there's the most amazing walk that you can do all the way down the Goulburn River. So you have to listen. There's no one to talk to, so you look. You look at, you know, what you're passing. You So this happened for a long time, over months. And then it got a bit warmer. You know, this is mm. qu it was quite, quite cool when I started. And I would start seeing other people walking at this time. And there would be these sort of shadows arriving. And it is women walking in full burqa with their Nike trainers. Mm. Everyone says good morning, and off we go. So I think that I got this, I built up this understanding of place through just quietly assimilating, through quietly experience. And it's, it's, a, it's an untrammeled space. It's, it's mm. not a built space. It's a, it's a place. It's a sounds. It's a song lines. It's a, a um, you know, that is a treat, I think, to be able to build that up over time. And then the way that other people were working and living and existing and making this space their own through this walking process, through talking and, and bringing their own traditions and experiences with them. Yeah, it's, it's so, those, those habits, it's the things that we do on a daily basis yeah, that come to define. little gestures. Yeah, that come to Little gestures of total joy. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested, from, in your background around arts, yeah. what difference do you think the space that people view art in makes and how they perceive the art? So I know at the Curie Heritage Trust, the previous building, they had a gallery that all the walls were painted black. Yep. And so it was quite a different space to view art in. Yeah. What do you think... The, the experience of the space, the habitat that art sits in, impacts how we view it? I think it impacts enormously. I mean, there's been a lot of work done in this area, how we how we engage with space, how we view exhibitions. Most people um, walk in and they go to the left and they go an anti-clockwise way, you know, and they've done tests and research. And there are lots of um, worthy journal articles about this. Uh, I've worked with artists who have consciously subverted that. So I worked with Mike Nelson and we had two exactly the same doors, exactly the same, and against one door, at right angles to each other. Next to one door, I put a little black and white photograph. Mm. 
And it was really interesting. You'd see people come in and they'd do this panic because the automatic reaction was to go in the right door, whichever the door was, but there was a work next to the other door. So do you want to miss out on that or do you want to see at the end? You know, so you'd see this sort of crisis, you know, and that was quite a... Um, it was a fascinating sort of play, and that was just the first decision they needed to make to get into the gallery space. Mm. Then um, I think what has been really interesting in the last few years is that, you know, in the 1980s, we went through a very sort of monumental, a period of monumental museum building. The, the museum is the sort of grand statement, mm. and the spaces inside, I think, were quite difficult in terms of how did the artist work with it? Do you fight the space? Do you work with the space? Do you have to do something in the same scale? Do you, you know, that, that is very much part of the consideration that artists working in these environments, in any space, any context, any situation will think about. Um, we then sort of moved on and a lot of the, you know, your white cube galleries had no natural light. Now, again, coming back to this idea of light, that's a shocking way to, uh, you know, it's good. It means you've got complete climate control. It means you can control your light levels, but it doesn't enable you to bring your own experiences with you in the same way. Mm. Um, and the experience, I think, now of looking at art is not, and perhaps shouldn't be, completely pure. Uh, we need to muddle things up a little bit. And yeah. I think that's probably what artists are inviting and asking us to do. So um, I think space has an enormous impact on how we view and what artists can do uh, uh, with the work and the ideas that they're trying to evolve. Having said that, artists, I think, are super genius a lot of the time, and they will always, they like to have constraints, just like as a curator, you often like to have a constraint to push against. Yeah. You know, if everyone said, yes, the budget is unlimited, yes, you know, you can do whatever you want, yes, it's not a problem, you sort of go, oh, really? Um, you know, and then you go, okay, that's great. But, you know, I think that that idea of what are the constraints that I'm working with is actually an interesting problem. Yeah. So for a space, when, sorry, I know no, you've got no, another question. Have we got to finish? No, 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 I want to ask a question. Okay, <laughs> all right, so for a space, what do we want? We want something that is flexible. We want something that doesn't cost too much to paint it out. Mm -hmm. We want something that people can, does two things at once, I think. It builds a cumulative memory so that you can go, oh, yes, last time I came, you know, I think that I remember that something was different, but I'm not quite... So you, you mentally put yourself in that space and you bring your own experience of viewing. And more often than not, that's a... And this is how I felt, you know, so there's an emotive aspect to it, I think, again. That goes back to what Naomi said at the beginning of putting the heart in the soul, you know, putting the soul in the, in the building. Mm. Um, but you then need it to be agile enough to give a new experience, to give over a new experience. So you, you have to work it hard. Yeah. I'm really interested. In, you're going to ask a question. I'm, going to ask, I'm up here now, so I get to ask a question. Uh, I was really interested in that idea where you spoke about the... The, having the natural lighting, because I know when we worked on the, the trust, the idea of having natural light was, well, that's a problem because it's going to possibly degrade the art. And, yeah. and that, it comes back to a thing that we deal with working in the heritage space in yeah. that we have sites that we'll find where there'll be an artefact scatter and we say, well, we can't tell people about them because otherwise there's a chance that they'll get destroyed. Yeah. But because of that, then we can't experience them at all. No one can experience them. They get locked away, they get buried. And it's a similar thing to what you're saying, that... Mm. 
because you're boxing these things away, you can't actually experience them the way that you're supposed to or in a, in a more fulfilling way. And so is it really achieving its goal? Uh, and I think it's an interesting balance that you have to find between should we be preserving something so it will never, nothing bad will ever happen to it yeah. but won't give us the full joy or is it better to have a lot of the joy for as long as we can knowing that that might mean it, it, it's not around forever? I'm going to say one thing and I can see the microphones waving here but um, I think in the context of Shepparton I'm working in a museum context so we have a collection and we have a we're custodians of that collection mm. we care for it it's in our custodianship our care for a short period of time and we need to maintain and look after that for it to continue to live into the future. So mm. I have a fantastic registrar. That's one of the joys of having a, a museum, you know, a, a museum structure, who is incredibly ordered, incredibly organised, won't let any organic material into the thing unless it's been zapped in the freezer. You know, and I think I was thinking, heavens, when I worked at ACCA, we I had an artist in the space cooking meals and inviting guests to come and talk about the things that they actually shared together. And I thought, mmm she and I are going to get on really well. But it's actually very interesting because we come from a position of mutual respect. Mm. And then we both have to be a little bit flowy, you mm. know, within the confines of the museum and what we're both trying to achieve. Yeah. So I get you on that one. Yeah. But I think sometimes we've got to be a little bit more plastic, as my grandmother used to say, uh, in terms of what do we want to achieve long term. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Look, I was just going to add a little bit to that conversation, and I, I was the, lucky enough to be the project architect on ACCA for when I was working at Wood Marsh, and I think Roger Wood was in here in the audience before, yeah. but um, I think, you know, we spoke for a couple of years to artists about what that space might be, and, yeah. and I think it goes back to what Ruben was saying earlier about sort of, you're never going to please everybody, I mean, there's no way you could sort of accommodate everybody's needs within that, and maybe sort of the robust kind of vessel, you know, which is what that attempts to be, is is, is perhaps yeah. a sort of happy medium, but I wanted to ask, I think probably the two best, you know, art exhibitions or events I've seen in the, in the last, you know, I don't know how long ago, it's now the last 15 years or so, was the uh, Melbourne Biennial, which yep. only happened once, yep. which was up in the old Hero, which now is the Hero Apartment Building, and old So we're calling telecom- it the One Annual. Yes, the One Annual, uh, which sadly never happened again. It yeah. was one of the most fantastic events to happen in Melbourne. Mm. And also Spring 1880, which happened at the yep. Windsor Hotel, uh, I think last year. I think it's only happened once or maybe twice and will happen again this year as part of the art fair. Yep. So, is I mean, is we'll always have our institutions, I think, but is the future of art maybe sort of moving beyond the gallery and out into the community more? I think that when I... Um, I had worked at the old Acker, interestingly, in the, you know, little Victorian workers' cottage, and there was um, the Daryl Jackson extension. OK, I'll finish. This is the finish. Daryl Jackson extension on the end and at that stage you know we thought that was the biggest gallery space that was in Melbourne we then moved into Acker and I was lucky enough to do the first show in that space we went in there was no floor hard hats and the volume we were thinking volumetrically about how to work with the space very fast we realized that the space was a skin and that we needed to work within and beyond so I think you're right I think that we will continue you need a point of reference you need a point of contact but then you move in and out. So, I, I, yes, is the short answer. Oh, it's a, yeah, well, thank you. And I'm sorry, we could probably go on and on. It's a great discussion. Uh, thank you both. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And thanks, Reuben. That was a fantastic time on stage there. Um, our next guest, I'm really looking forward to this, uh, is Professor, it's always good to have a professor up on the stage, uh, Julia Bernhardt, uh, healthcare architecture Hello. and environmental scientist from the Flory Institute. So. Um, Welcome, Professor Julia. Thank you. 
And I, another one I'm, I'm very delighted to meet. Um, and, you know, it was one of those sort of exciting, oh, good, this is going to, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thank you very much. So I think um, when I read the two questions that they very kindly sent round to us, I thought, mm, I'm not going to ask that. But I am actually quite interested in knowing what does habitat mean for you? And I had a really interesting time thinking about it. Um, I think a couple of key things are fundamental to me. I believe that our habitat shapes our behaviour and our mood. And I think we, we also have evidence for that. So I'm going to talk about evidence because I'm a scientist. And because it shapes our behaviour and our mood, it is so important to to how we exist and what we do. Um, for me, habitat is, I'm, I'm very attuned to the natural environment. So I really can't survive happily without having some access. Um, I'm actually the kind of person who will be seen walking down the street saying, oh, good morning, bird, where people think I'm a complete nut. Um, but equally, for me, habitat, the, the kind of habitat that I, uh, I enjoy is also one in which there's a sense of community mm. where you feel you watch the community interacting and it allows that kind of uh, important interaction between individuals that is uh, really nurturing uh, for everybody and gives a sense of place. So it, it shapes our behaviour, it really shapes our mood. I feel very different, I'm not a city person. I don't like being in crowds, so for me, uh, uh, I will feel stressed in that environment. So I, th I think it's very individual. So where did you grow up? I actually grew up out in Croydon. Right. So it's not... Uh, it's, now, very it's very leafy. It's very leafy, green. Very green. Um, the things, and I think I'm attuned to that by growing up in that environment, the things I don't like about that environment, no offence to Croydon, is that uh, my parents still live there, is that that sense of community doesn't exist in the mm. same way that mm. it exists in Northcote, where I live now, mm. where you can walk down the street and you see that there are people from all walks of life. We have uh, our local residents who are uh, vulnerable, who are in the community, that everyone embraces. And I, I love that. Mm. I love that. To me, that's a great community and a great... The habitat allows that and the people within it allow that to happen. And I think that probably from when you grew up in Croydon, which was quite... You know, that was a quite leafy green outer ring of Melbourne now. It's actually almost become an inner suburb, hasn't it? So probably the aspirations for people living in that sort of environment then are now quite different. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other part of Habitat with my sort of medical hat on is also around the environments in which we have to be when we, when we have no choice. So hospital environments, mm. which is what I'm interested in, mm. uh, are the places where we don't want to be there necessarily, but we have to be there. Mm. And those habitats then, I think, have a capacity to either uh, help us heal or um, slow us down from healing. So the helpful or the harmful aspects mm. of a habitat, uh, I think, are really important in 
environments where we don't choose to be. And, and probably that's the same for prisons or anywhere else where uh, people are put. Institutional spaces absolutely. that we need for our as part of our democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the area that I thought was really interesting and exciting to talk to you about today. Um, probably going one step back from the work that you're doing um, and whether you choose to be, you know, this idea of spaces that you have to be in, the place that you work in, in the Flory Institute, that's a quite unique institution. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the place where you work, where you do this research, where you think about these sort of broader questions. Yeah, uh, it's actually really interesting because the Flory is quite a new institution. Uh, the Howard Flory, of course, has been around for a very long time. In fact, there's a connection with Alice, whose father did a documentary about the Howard Flory, which I think is wonderful about these conversations. Uh, but the Howard, the, the Flory Institute, the building itself is actually quite new. And before that, I worked in an old nurse's home mm. uh, at the Heidelberg Repat Hospital, um, where we had paint peeling off the ceilings. Um, and it, it still, did it affect how we function? I think to some degree, uh, there was outdoor spaces that allowed us to uh, uh, get together and, and uh, be together to talk. And, uh, but there were also really private spaces because it's an old nurse's home. You used to have the, do have the door shut and it allow you to think. So this is where it becomes really interesting. So the new space now that you're working in, the how would space. you describe it? Beautiful light, uh, some uh, mostly open plan. Um, and some areas that are really great for conversations and stimulating ideas. Uh, but the open plan, scientists hate it. Mm. Everybody hates the open plan. Mm. Um, and so I think is that's this really the, interesting. Is this the scourge of our professional generation, the open plan, this idea of hot desking and I, for I, the sort of work that you do? I, I wonder whether it's about, and this is about the environment shaping our behaviour, mm. um, in those open plan spaces for researchers, um, you have to not speak uh, loudly or uh, often because you're trying to allow people thinking space. A lot of what scientists do is, um, is very inward. So they're inward and they're sitting uh, doing their work. Uh, but they also need, we also need spaces to communicate and connect so that we come up with new ideas that are tackling problems. Um, so I think the, the scourge is that uh, there's a lot of people who just spend their time feeling frustrated in mm. those spaces. Some people are fine and others are not, and that's where we need variability. So do you tend to take work home? Do you work at home? Is that how you, I you manage that? Well, I have an office. That's what happens when I'm a, you get to be a professor. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm a little protected. Um, but other people who I know struggle, I encourage them to work flexibly. So, and that's the issue, isn't it? That we've had to work out a different way of working flexibly, flexibly that, you know, is better for life-work balance, but it also means a greater productivity, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. And for some people, they, they need to work flexibly to be productive. There are times when they just cannot be in that environment. So we've talked about where you work and that opportunity for the architecture to actually create, create or possibly hinder creative mm -hmm. process and then the sort of research process that you're doing. You um, were successful in um, uh, being awarded a Churchill Fellowship to go and do research around the way that spaces 
influence. It's not really well-being, is it? But, uh, but it is recovery. health and recovery. Mm -hmm. mm. And so what did you find? So, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. It meant I had lots of time to go and talk to people in different countries. And uh, I was in Sweden. In fact, one of my colleagues is here visiting Melbourne recent, recently. There she is. Hi, Mari. I came and visited Mari, who was over in, um, in Sweden and uh, also in, in Finland and, and the US. The US is, was really interesting um, because, of course, the US is the health system is driven by uh, it's a market system. Mm. Uh, it, and yes, it has fostered some innovation in the delivery of healthcare. There's a lot of emphasis about um, trying to attract people to choose a hospital. So there's a lot of emphasis on the sort of visual part of, of when you first come in, and also a lot about um, single bedrooms and having private spaces. Uh, but it, it isn't how we function. We uh, have you know, some private hospitals, but really we're about delivering healthcare to everybody. And so is Sweden, the Swedish system. And you see a lot of innovation there. I think the things that I saw that were most uh, helpful in contemplating what I wanted to do next is that there are examples of places where there's been complete redesigns of systems that have had demonstrable outcomes. Uh, and an example of that is in Sweden where they had an opportunity to redesign a facility for people with mental illness. And they went from a particular design that, uh, that was obviously suboptimal to one where they sat and, and contemplated the importance of having uh, access to the outdoors, or at least being able to see outdoor spaces, uh, to have different types of a room arrangements, um, to have spaces that allowed people to have some communal contact with each other. And what they saw from this redesign was a drop in drug use. Mm. Um, the, and, uh, the drugs that they needed to help people with their recovery, uh, a drop in behaviour uh, that was um, aggressive. Uh, really demonstrable outcomes mm. for people. And so that shows you that the building can actually have a really big impact. Mm. Oh, in my, my summer holiday reading list, I think probably along with many other people, I read Oliver Sacks' autobiography. And I've read a number of his books over the years, and there have been amazing, amazing mm. case studies, mm. I think, of the power of music, mm. the power of movement. But this was interesting because it was about the man and how he evolved his methodology. And that's part of what you're talking about, em empirical research-based, but a methodology that pushes new ground. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I, I have no medical background, um, but I was fascinated by the way he talked about his own houses uh, in this and how the move from one continent to another, which is a habitat, mm. enabled him to work differently. And I wondered, just thinking about your Churchill Fellowship um, trip and the, the contrast between America and, say, those northern European countries, is there a... Is there something about a country that enables you to push forward a different sort of thinking about work, life and space? So I think that's a really interesting question. Um, 
I don't want to talk in generalities or You can be specific. All right, be specific. Well, just this is a case study. It's an example. Yeah, I'll give you a bit better. I think think the answer is yes. Um, uh, I'll always put the caveat on that it's a single case. But when I went to uh, Texas in the States, um, the example there was profound. It was really interesting. So I arrived in a, a small city where... Uh, they had the main focus was the university, so mm. Texas A&M University. It's a massive university. The thought that, or the lack of thought, uh, that had gone into how they designed this to me was front and centre and really obvious. They hadn't uh, they hadn't put in footpaths. Uh, they have no public transport system, so they were very happy to for everyone to drive and for the drivers for the whole structure of that community to be based around the car. Um, the outdoor spaces were also not uh, not very well thought out. It, be, it was obvious. And I think that's the thing about it that's interesting in Melbourne. Uh, we perhaps take it for granted that we have these. We walk past them and we feel something. Uh, but when you don't have them, you really notice that you don't have them. And so I found uh, that environment, I couldn't, that would be a really difficult environment for me to work in and not creative. Uh, and then when you go to other places where there's been thought um, put into community and keeping it together, I think you uh, really see that. I, I, and also, personally, uh, we lived in a, a home that was a 1940 clinker brick um, house in Northcote that was very dark and, um, and pretty. And uh, it, it just became... I, it's dark. It's always dark. I feel dark. Dark. We need to do something about it. And uh, and we chose to rebuild. Um, with relu- I was reluctant, but we chose to rebuild. And uh, now, I every time I come home to a light-filled, green, um, engaged space, I just feel different and happy. Mm. So I think it can be a profound influence wherever you go. And in terms of our um, the opportunity to build new institutional spaces, and let's get back to the mm. institution, what do you think we need to do now? What's the big thing, you know, in terms of influencing policy or in terms of thinking for the future? What would be your three take-homes? If you had to... You've got three things. Yeah, so we're engaged in this process at the moment. The, the big vision is to do the work that we need to do uh, to design the best environment we can come up with that will lead to the outcomes we want. Um, And that is to build the ideal. You have to do the ideal. Aim big, aim bold, be innovative. I think, so I think we need to have more science because it will help inform how we go about designing things. Uh, We also need to think about sustainability uh, and it really needs to be innovative. And I think those are the three things that we want to bring to trying to design new mm. hospital spaces. That's a great point to end on. Thank you so Thanks much. So I heard the bell. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Fantastic input into the discussion. Uh, it always occurred to me, we were talking about this earlier, about, um, you know, there's a, I think, most uh, institutional spaces, our healthcare spaces in general, are really, are really god awful. I mean, they're some of the worst environments. They're always built on practicality. 
And so what that must do for our well-being in terms of um, as a wellness thing, but also the places that people work in, like doctors and nurses. Mm. And I was at a doctor's, I went to see a doctor last week and he, he's a place in the city and he works in a cubicle with no windows. And I said, this must be awful. He said, yeah, it's terrible. Mm. I think there's some of the most valuable, uh, valuable sort of members of our society. And yet we're putting them in spaces that you wouldn't put the most lowly paid workers. Mm. Uh, they just It just wouldn't happen in an office environment. And what that must do to their... We know now that productivity increases by 20 or 30%, depending on the environment we put people in. And yet we're asking these doctors and nurses to work in these spaces that are, that are just that are suboptimal. Yep. So, I mean... How, I mean Couldn't agree more. So there must be sort of research being done to kind of change that, yeah, I guess. Well, so, uh, every research that we're doing includes staff. You've got to include the patients, the staff, and then the big designer community. It has to be something, it has to be a collective approach to how we design. Yeah, well, evidence-based design is luckily coming back now. It sort of went away after the 70s and is coming back into fashion, so hopefully we'll see a lot more of that. Um, Well, thank you. And uh, now we're going to switch spots again. Um, And Kate McMahon, somewhere... Oh, she's right in front of me here. Uh, (laughs) She's from Hello City. Uh, She's an artist. She's an urban designer. She's a placemaker. She does a bit of everything. So uh, welcome, Kate. Hello, Kate. (laughs) I've been really looking forward to talking to Kate. Um, we have to start with the requisite question. So yes. what does habitat mean for you? Um, I, I like everyone who was invited to do this today. I've been spending the week thinking about it. And um, actually this week I was reading a bit of a sort of 70s theorist called Lefab who writes about cities. And um, one of the things he says is that cities are a good city is a wild, untamed, raw place that when you're in a really good city, it's a place that makes you know that you're alive. And um, and in fact, it's a place that helps you become who you are to reach, he calls it Mm self-realisation. And um, I married a boy from Trafalgar in Gippsland and uh, he's a country mouse. And we've realised over our 15-year relationship that um, I'm a absolute city person and uh, <laughs> so there's some kind of compromise somewhere at some point mm-hmm. um, but yeah so when I had children I actually moved to from Collingwood to Northcote when the second child com- came to this um, actually my friend Sunny call, called it a, a Howard Arkley house it was completely like a dream suburban dream house and um, it was at actually the same street that you described of all those, you know, I knew all the neighbours and everything, and I totally hated it. Like, just really <laughs> felt like I was buried alive in suburbia. And um, eventually we... Um, I know in Northcote, it's like, right, that's hardly, you know. Mind you, to be fair, I lived in that bit right near the golf course in Mary Creek and St George's Road where there's, like, you've got to walk 30 minutes to reach, it, reach anything, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so I finally planned an escape, which was to move to the family of four to a two-bedroom rented apartment in Fitzroy, which we're loving. But it was really interesting because at first, like, a couple of potential landlords were like, oh, no, we're not going to lease to a family. And then actually told us that they would... And it's not because they thought we would damage their property. They just were like, we think you're being unwise. We don't think you understand... Do you know, you really want to live, and I, you know, I was saying, I just came from there. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. So, and we actually pay ten bucks more a week because that was the just only way. We, yeah, just to go. No, seriously, look, we'll pay more. Believe us, we want to. And um, 
Yeah, so that's the, the habitat now. And we also have, um, my husband's a um, carpenter and we make stuff together, including caravans, which are another habitat. Oh, yes. yeah. And um, we have 300 square metres in Brunswick as well, like a warehouse, which we've got a community of, you know, interesting people who share the space with us from someone who's running their PhD on roller derby through to uh, sculptors and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So we've sort of got the different habitats that can do different things. Ah, which I think we perhaps all need. We need that variation, don't we, that variety. So we can come, we can dip in and out of different environments. And I think that thing, and that's the thing that Lafarbe goes on about, is that you can shape that it's a two-way thing. Your environment shapes you, but you're also able to shape it. I think like that University of Texas thing, when you get a car-dominated place, mm. and I um, studied in LA with Nell, who was here before, actually, at one point, and, I, and LA was horrible because you never felt like you could shape it or leave your fingerprints on it in any way. Mm. So, yeah. As a, as a resident of Northcote, yeah. and I'll take no I really don't mean to malign it. No, I love Northcote. <laughs> uh, I was really interested in reading about your work, uh, through through your work, uh, about your project in Reserva. Um, Reza. Reza. How yeah. uh, you, were, you were brought in by Darabin Council to look at uh, Reza's identity. Yeah. And I particularly liked uh, reading that one of the strategies that you used to try and get to the heart of Reza's identity was that you took out a 1950s caravan <laughs> yeah. um, to the streets of, of Reza. So can you give me give me a bit more information about that? So, I mean, the city of Darabin were, I think, a really forward-looking like, council in that they were saying, look, we've got this suburb, which is, you know, they, of course, have in their um, Ballywick, Northcurt and Westgarth and Preston. And so they could sort of see where things were going. Like There's this wave of gentrification, which is sort of washing out. And it's about to smash into Reservoir, which has its own issues like any place. And is a real, I mean, it's history for people who don't know. Reza is, um, it's a very um, working class background, um, quite a lot of disadvantage. So really, amazing green spaces and um, waterways and um, people who are really, really, really fucking proud of it. Like, there's an incredible sense of identity. When you're from Reza, it means something to be from Reza. And, um, and so council really saw their role as understanding that identity and protecting it. And we're real believers in the sense of if we want to keep something, if we want something to, we need to be able to articulate what's good about a place. We need to be able to understand the values that make up who we are. And then by all means change, you know, mess with that identity if you like. But first of all, start by understanding what matters. And so, and part of the way Hello City do that is, um, kind of, you know, in any community there's gatekeepers and there's people who get heard. And um, those people are important and often they get heard because they've got something very specific or very expert to offer. Um, and there's also often people who um, uh, might, might not hold a lot of power in that community or just might be completely disinterested in talking to, to you um, in that community. And, and if you... If your business is to uncover meaning and value, then you need to find those people. So the 50s caravan, we also bribed people with cupcakes, by oh, the way. So it was just a way to get out there, kind of make a bit of a um, spectacle of ourselves in a way that would make people go, what the hell are they doing? And kind of come and talk to us. Um, and we had an artist, Andrew McWalter, who went and just um, uh, spray painted on the footpath um, 
what is reservoir leading up to the event and we had posters so we sort of were sort of doing almost treating ourselves a bit like a rock band coming to town like you know kind of it's a very disappointing rock band of course but you know that sense of and it was really to to trick in a way or to you know get people who might not otherwise have come and shared mm. their thoughts to do it and it worked yeah it's fantastic. really good so what is Reza's identity? If you had three words out of um, out of the many, what would you say? Reza, okay, so um, one of the things about Reservoir is um, there's that real sense of it. it it's um, it's it's kind of it's time to shine for all sorts of reasons, but it's got like it's incredibly um, cool without knowing it is. Like there's <laughs> shops with no names that sell donuts, you know, not in that Fitzroy shop with no name that sells donuts thing, but just in a kind of like, we can't be asked putting up a name kind of thing. And we don't need to because everyone knows our donuts are totally fucking awesome, so they'll come anyway. So it's this whole, and there's beautiful details like tiles or whatever. There's, they're also, it's a place that, beautiful aspect of suburbia of productive gardens and productive sheds so there's lots of people who work from home there and are producing amazing yeah, culture yeah. and who make food and share food and there's that kind of invisible thing and then there's the architectural stuff too the old signage and all that sort of stuff that's very quickly disappearing so one of the recommendations in our report was document that understand that you know and then start to think about ways where you might encourage you know the private owners of that history to maintain it and and but in a way that was also part of their daily lives and enriches their daily lives as well or helps them make money or whatever it is yeah fantastic um, i'm really interested in uh as well because i think it's so important that the interdisciplinary nature you really emphasize in your work that you work together with people from very diverse backgrounds so yep. um, I've got my question is uh, how important do you think that is and and can you think of something an example of something where bringing that other voice in might have really changed the whole landscape for you oh yeah I think I think it's that um uh, hello city is two people and it's my me and Sunny my business partner who's here today um and I think what brought us together is that we're both city lovers. Like, we love cities. And um, if you love a city in particular, but I suppose any, most communities, it's actually not all communities, cities, they're about diversity. And they're about, they're, they're successful almost to the extent that they're diverse. So the more you homogenise them, the more you sort of narrow down or make them specialist, um, basically they get really boring and they start to suck the life out of you. And so it's about most successful projects and most successful places are about enriching and multiple places. It's kind of what you're talking about. Like mm. a hospital is a machine that's designed to do one thing and do it really well. It's a specialist place. And that's exactly why it's horrible. Mm. Um, so it's this thing of trying to deal with the mess and chaos that makes a place make you be alive. Um, and the only way to do that is to include as many, to get as many fingerprints on there as possible without stopping the experts from being able to do that thing that they do really well. You need a shithold architect who can get to do architecture. You don't want to kind of make a design by committee, but somehow you've got to let those voices in as well. And uh, so to think of an example of one, I'm looking at Sunny now saying if she can help me out here. Um, <laughs> kind of, it feels like every project. Um, um, that, 
you know, the thing is, Julie actually warned me about this, that she was going to ask me this, and I still haven't prepared something. So um, just before we started, I think maybe... I think one of the reasons I'm struggling is that every project is improved by different voices and it's not... Um, okay, I can think of one for Reza. One of the things we did, we often do, is we'll go and have a look at social media and so we'll actively engage with people. One of the great things uh, about these days is that we're all parts of communities with people we've never met before on social media and on Twitter and so forth. So one of the things we did is we connected with different people who um, talk about Reservoir in their Twitter feeds or in blogs. There's this fantastic blog called Noir Tales about Reservoir, which really influenced us. <laughs> and um, one of the things we did is, because one of the jobs we had to do was also come up with a place brand for Reza and a bit of a byline. And um, uh, there was, I think his tag is Reservoir Dad on Twitter, who said... Um, uh, he came up with this idea. He basically said, "Reza is a reservoirsome," and we really, <laughs> and which became part of our strategy was this sort of hashtag reservoirsome campaign. Because one of the problems with Reza is people are really negative about it. When we did a media review, um, there were um, masses of um, articles about crime and sickness in Reservoir, whereas North gets all about culture and festivals and art and yeah. food and whatever. And um, so one of the recommendations that's just sort of starting forward was hashtag Reservoirsome because it, first of all, teaches you how to say the name in a nice way because it's not Reservoir, of course, it's Reservoir. Um, and then it's this sort of celebration of everything that's uh, fabulous. So, yeah, often when you're in a role like ours, the job is to just... Um, other people do the amazing stuff yeah, and you just ca gather it in. Now, you're a, you're a lover of cities, yes. so I'm going to ask you the second question that we had as well, which is what do you think is really important for the future, for our habitat? I think one of the things is, you know, Lefab again, he talks about the right to the city. So, and that what he means by that is that Cities can tend to be shaped by the forces of capitalism uh, or powerful people, um, uh, sort of corporate forces. And um, a really interesting city is a place where all of us get to, in some way, shape it. And I don't, again, I don't mean that we have workshops where we all design buildings or whatever, but that we under, that places are, that we don't have too many shopping malls, that we have public spaces that are actually properly public spaces where you can protest and where you can, you know, enact as part of a citizen of a city. Mm. And, um, and change the city if you don't like it, which you can't do in a shopping centre. You'll get shown out by us. You can't even take a photograph in a shopping centre generally. So, um, and I think the other thing is that we're sort of, we're adding, we're, you know, some people talk about the idea of solid modernity, which we used to have, where things were stable and people had a job for life and bureaucracy kind of worked, you know, in the sense of, you know, it was very object and that we've moved into a kind of modernity now which is completely fluid, where it's constantly in flux and everything is changing and um, it's very hard to even understand what risk is, let alone control it. And I think the really exciting thing for the future is that in a, in a world where most of the people sitting here, I'm guessing, have probably lived in more than one city or lived in more than one country or moved between in ways we never have before. 
possibly some of you have relationships with people that you've never met, you know, in, in the internet and are part of multiple really tiny communities that might have members from all over the world. So in that kind of place of fluidity, how do we start to re-understand what it means to have a habitat? You know, what does it mean when I say I'm from Melbourne now? Of course, I'm not, I grew up in Wollongong, you know, I've lived in different places. What does that mean and how does that sense of place and how that place shape you, how does that play out, you know? That's your next project. Yeah. I'm from Melbourne. What does that mean? A great <laughs> yeah. place to stop. Good timing. Um, uh, well, thank you. Thanks, Juliet. Thank you for your time on stage. Uh, I don't know how I do this. I was supposed to introduce my own self onto the stage, but I'm just going to sit over there. <laughs> do that. Hi, Kate. Hi, Simon. How are you? I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start by asking you the, the question we've all been asking. What's, what's Habitat for Simon? Um, well, it, I mean, Habitat for me is something, I'm, I'm an architect and I've, you know, thought about it sort of all my life and I kind of guess it's what led me into being an architect is thinking about what it is to make space. Um, so, I mean, Habitat for me is something that goes well beyond the sort of just the, the sort of functional aspect of something and actually what it is to enrich our lives and a place to live. And it's not something I think, you know, there's a whole lot of threads I can draw together today about, you know, what that might be. Um, but it's certainly something that's not static and it's not something that's fixed. And I don't think, I think all of us might have a different idea about what that might be. I don't think it's just something for people either. I think it's, you know, something for um, the whole of our kind of ecosystem and that includes plants and, and, uh, and animals and, and other, other things that go towards making that. Um, I don't, know if, I don't know if you want to keep going. Or, yeah. No, no, no. So I think I'm probably like a lot of people here and that I know just enough about architecture to be dangerous. Um, but, you know, I think of an architect as being the sort of person who makes that, makes a home, do you know, makes a, a shelter, that sort of, that thing that allows you to um, have your own personalised habitat but also interact with a broader mm. environment. Thinking about, like I was thinking about who I know that's here and I know people who are here that do environmental policy. There's someone here, I see a contemporary art, artist here today um, and um, art teacher and a whole lot of different people. So thinking about the really diverse crowd that's here, what do you think an architect has? What can we learn from architects about how to have a better relationship or a more interesting engagement with the habitat, with our own habitat? Um, well, there's a whole range of things there, and you know, I could talk for sort of hours about that, but I guess maybe a good way to talk about it is um, in terms of, you know, I, I live in Northcote, I'm one of those people <laughs> <laughs> as well, uh, in Westgarth, in a really beautiful spot. Um, and we chose it because uh, we wanted to find a place that we could, my, me and my partner, that we could have a family in and make a space for a long period of time. So I'm really regretting bagging it now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, look, and, uh, look, but that's okay because I think that's, you know, that's what it should be. Your own habitat should be a place that you feel comfortable in. It doesn't, it's not going to suit everyone. And, and where we live certainly wouldn't suit everyone, but it's ideal for, for who we are. And um, over a period of time, we set about designing a, a, you know, a place for ourselves there that we could inhabit for a long period of time. And you know, that's an architect designing their own house is a fraught thing quite often and, um, and something that's quite tricky. But the way um, we approached it and, um, 
and my partner's an, she's an artist, so you know, it was something that had to be a sort of place of creativity and something for our unborn children at the time, you know, a space of creativity in a very beautiful, we're, we're almost, we're sort of, there's no houses opposite us, it's just Merry Creek, so it's quite a beautiful environment as well. But um, going back to some of the discussion I think Rebecca was having before about sort of um, art spaces too and the sort of thinking behind those is what we decided to do was create this sort of vessel and it's kind of, it's, the idea was this sort of idea of the doll's house and um, going back to the sort of original kind of idea of a doll's house, going back, you know, to the 15th and 16th centuries, they were these sort of, these kind of vessels for people, the village people to display kind of artisans wear. So the sort of skills of the kind of village would be displayed within these kind of boxes. So less about a plaything for kids and more about a, a place of creativity to be to kind of a collection of, of creative things. So for us, the, the house or the habitat is this thing that's, uh, really just a kind of space it's just a it's just a big sort of double you know it's two-story kind of warehouse space there's no walls inside uh, it's all just it's all just divided by joinery and places for things we have you know through my partner we have a lot of art we you know we I've, I've, we've collected art between us over our lifetimes um, things that our friends give us stuff so there's places for that but also right at the heart of that so it's a vessel for all that to kind of um, in, impact the way that house um, uh, evolves over time but also a place that we can adapt and change to our changing lifestyle over it. Now we have two young boys, we have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and how they interact within that house. But very importantly, at the heart of it is these sort of creative spaces that are linked. It's my partner's studio that's right in the middle of it, and also the, the children's play area, the kids' play area, and that's a sort of flexible space as well. And they, they sort of coexist together, but they really sort of form the heart of that. So at... at for me, you know, architecture is not about the fixed thing. It's not about style. It's not about identity. Um, well, it is about identity, but the identity is achieved through how you actually live in that space. And I think we've been talking a long, for a long time in, in Australian architecture about um, how do we have an Australian architecture. And for me, that's not about what it actually looks like. It's not about saying, oh, it's a your corrugated iron sort of, you know, shed-like kind of structure. It's actually thinking about how Australians want to live in space, how they want to operate in space. And that's a, true, that's a very unique thing. I think the way we live in Melbourne is very unique. And if you can start to capture that in the architecture, and actually allow people to have various ways they can inhabit space and, and they can determine the way that they use that space, then it will ultimately be really successful. So making sure that... So you're thinking about the kind of experiences you can have and the kind of things you can do and, and remembering that that's going to change and it should change. Yeah. And you also just mentioned in that this idea of collecting, you know, your, your partner's an artist. Mm. And, She's a whore. And, and you also... Yeah, <laughs> and you, you, you use the word vessel a couple of times, which is a thing that an object that holds something. So what's that? Is that about telling stories? What is that? Is it about hoarding? What's this? Um, you know, yeah. there's also that expression that a house is um, um, for keep, keeping a box for keeping stuff in without a lid. Do you know? Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, I think going back, one of the things that really struck me. So I think in first year architecture school was that. Um, and I've forgotten who did the quote now, is that, uh, that your architecture is the, the stage on which you play out your life. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, really it is about creating that backdrop for that to happen. And, and Vessel's the perfect, all the doll's house is the perfect sort of um, analogy for me for that because and it's the same way, as I said before, when we were looking at, um, you know, when... Acker was being designed as an art gallery, you know, it shouldn't be about the sort of monument of what that space is. It actually should be about how it gets used. And, and it's all the things that go into it that give it that real sense of, you know, a cultural imperative and, and a sense of history. I mean, it's enormously important. I think, you know, something that is successful will, will be the ongoing success of this space 
uh, is this M Pavilion being in the same place each year. Mm. So the history gets built over time, and you're already starting to see that sort of momentum of that just in the space of having, you know, the second time around. It's kind so, of like what Rebecca was talking about with that. You remember the experience you had the last time we were yeah. here, and that starts building up layers of meaning. And you bring all those memories to that place. And I think, you know, also, I think it goes to some of the stuff Ruben's talking about, about sort of the Indigenous mm. kind of stories that happen in a place and remembering those and kind of building upon those. So I think that's common to all cultures, you know, those we continually, you know, that's it's why you can see, you know, paintings on, on caves in, you know, in the most primitive sort of occupation of space because people wanted to tell stories about those spaces. They wanted to kind of have, have, have them be something more than just a shelter from the rain or the wind or whatever it might be. Is that what, you know, like even the metaphor of the, the doll's house with the sense that, you know, local producers are displaying their goods, this mm. idea of display is that and when I went to the I think you know when you walk down the street in the Netherlands um, and people have this front um, what's that Dutch word for cosy disputer but they have their front window yeah. onto the street you can look in and you're seeing people's lives and there's often a little display of ornaments that's facing out like a picture window that's facing the passerby telling a story or something yeah I mean I think I think it's partly about display but I think it's also about what makes us feel comfortable and what inspires us and the things that we look at and kind of draw from and you know a big part of our living space is you know this uh, the most dominant part of it in fact is this huge wall of books yeah. um, and you know there's this big bookshelf but it just doesn't have it has books but also has little art objects and things that you know we've been given and we've collected and so um, you know that that is kind of you know starting to become the history of our lives and that's important to us it'll be you know important to our kids as they start to draw from that and I remember that vividly you know, as a, as a child kind of going through my parents' bookcases and their sort of objects and stuff and looking at those and wondering, yeah, that was a lifetime before I existed and what does that mean, you know, what does that tell about me? But I think also the doll's house analogy is not just about sort of collecting or displaying. It's actually yeah. about, it's, it's something about being fun too. For us, you know, uh, you know, architecture should be fun too. You know, spaces should be fun. They should be enjoyable. You should, you know, they should be a place of gathering and sharing and laughter and a place where people come together like this, you know, and where you share stories. I mean, that's really important and it's not always uh, easy to make those spaces, make space conducive to that. And quite often it's not done. It's quite often, I mean, what alarms me the most is that most, uh, space and most residential space is designed off uh, a real estate board. Yeah. You know, most people come, you know, it's this idea that I need to have, you know, three bathrooms and four bedrooms because I'm thinking about what I'm going to sell it for to the next guy who lives there. And that's just preposterous to me as an idea yeah. of how you are, might make space in our cities. The, the, the most personal thing you might ever do, building and owning your own home, um, it goes to the filter of the most generic possible yeah. way of living. Well, and it's, it's certainly the younger people, the younger clients we get are always the more conservative because yeah. they're all the ones that are kind of thinking, oh, shit, you know, I'm spending all this money. Uh, what is it going to resale for down the t down the track? Whereas your know, older clients, we get you know in their 60s and sometimes in their 70s, are fantastically open to that because they're like, I don't care. You know, I just want to. I want the space that I want to live in for me and it to be inspiring for me and to be you know about me. So thinking about that kind of place, that place that enables people to have fun or even inspires a sense of fun, a place that tells story and is rich in layered meaning. Mm -hmm. Now. What if you could change one thing about the arc, the profession, like in architecture? If you could, you know, magically wave a magic wand and shift an aspect of it, or or maybe emphasise a bit that's working really well, what would that be? How would you redirect that to to make more of that? Um, well, I think it. I don't know if there's an easy way to answer that question. I guess. 
I was actually at an M Pavilion thing about a week and a half ago, and I sort of we talked about you know the ways that you could improve multi-residential living. And I think you know for me, and I've said this many times publicly, I think the one thing that would make an enormous change to the way that we um, we build our apartment buildings in Melbourne is to ban political donations to politicians from developers. So because I think that has a sort of enormously detrimental effect on our built environment. And 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 I and I say that you know and that I, I say that in seriousness, but it's somewhat amusing as well. But it is a very serious aspect of the way we build space in our city is that it's largely driven around commerce and about a, f a financial transaction and a lot of I think the alarm that we're seeing now at the moment about uh, these apartment buildings being built in a number of them there's some really good ones out there and I think you know we need developers we need people investing in our cities and they're a very important part of that they won't happen without that and there's some very good developers out there but a number of these uh, buildings get built in the, and the People aren't building homes. They're not building sort of places for people to dwell. They're building financial instruments. They're actually places of... They're, they're an investment vehicle and they're no different to a stock or a bond or something else in my mind. Mm. And that's why they're so ordinary. They don't consider anything else. They don't consider the built fabric of our city. They don't consider the sense of place. They don't consider how we might live in those spaces and you know things like light and ventilation and all those things we need as, as people uh, in our habitats. And so what does an architect do about that? So that's like their, their drive, I mean, an architect serves a client. And then how do you, in a dynamic like that, where there's forces that are driving it that are outside your immediate practice? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think we fight pretty hard. I think, you know, good architects fight, fight. fight go. hard for good <laughs> outcomes. And I think the, the older I get, the more I'm in the profession, the more I realise that architecture's... Uh, I think lots of architects have really good ideas, but um, really good pieces of architecture when you see them built. I mean, I sort of tend to appreciate the fight that's gone into doing that, whether it's a public building or you know a private house, or that there's constantly, you know, over years you get hurdles put in front of you. And really good architects have a conviction and a passion to to overcome all those and not let it compromise the end result. So it's really fighting hard for that end result, and it is a battle most of the time. And it's really easy to compromise on it, and you can see it all the time. It's really easy for architects to compromise uh, in in what that outcome might be and just give give you know whoever the the outcome outcome that they're after that may not be the best outcome for our society or indeed the client. So um, yeah. it is it is fighting the good fight. And the one thing I'd say about that is if that's what a good architect does, that willingness to sort of stick to a vision and fight for it, perhaps an even better architect is one like yourself who advocates even more broadly for practices outside their own practice and for projects outside their own project. Well, I think so. I mean, I think there's, you know, I think there's a, um, something I've always held dear is this kind of idea of the larger community in architecture here in Melbourne. It's a really vibrant one. It's a really good one. And I used to always talk about that when I was younger and my friends would go, what do you mean? I don't yeah. know anything about that. And it sort of occurred to me, you know, very early on that that was quite a closed circle of discussion. And there's people like, you know, people, that's why sort of Robin Boyd's one of my heroes or someone like Ian McDougall, because they were fantastic architects but they didn't just stop at that. They actually took that out to the wider public and a wider public discussion about the benefits of design and, and what we see. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to get that. I think people understand that more now than they ever have. And I think the media sort of, you know, responds to that. And when we started doing our radio show, the media exists, you know, the reason the reason we did it because it was because the, the, the media profile for architects was sort of you know, changing rooms or, or decoration shows or those types of things that people actually didn't understand what architects did. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, that's just as much a part of that kind of, you know, of what we do to, to improve our built environment. Which maybe brings us back to a nice point that, you know, this is part of what this p pavilion is and enables. What Naomi's doing here is for us to have a 
you know, possibly it sounds like what's needed is more of that conversation about what matters and possibly mm. it, even heated, angry conversations at times. Well, I think it's what, what makes... I think, you know, we talked a little bit before about what makes Melbourne a great city uh, and that was part of the conversation. I think it is, it is that it has great conversations. It has great conversations not just amongst architects but amongst, you know, architects and philosophers and uh, academics and, you know... Um, doctors or you know whoever it is there's a there's an ongoing conversation and that's what will make this place really rich and it'll make it really um inspiring place for future generations yeah. so that's the end <laughs> on um, the bell yeah. um, <laughs> you can stay here with me kate because uh, um, i'm supposed to round this up with a bit of a conclusion um and i think i think you know i i've sort of in some ways sort of hesitant to do that because I think, you know, partly the sort of idea of this conversation is that you draw your own conclusions from what today has been and what the discussion has been. Uh, it's not going to stop here. There's an ongoing discussion with, there's one, there's the next session's on ritual, then transformation, then utopia. So I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting conversations going right through and into the night. Um, but I think there's some, some interesting things that have sort of spreaded their way through each of the conversations that we've had today and and I'd just like to sort of touch on maybe some of them and maybe you can help me out as well, Kate. Um, I think I think one thing that's um, clear is uh, a, a habitat is, is a communal space, is something where we come together. I think it's much more, I think it's a social space. I think we don't, they don't, a sort of habitat doesn't exist with that, uh, without that. I think it's it's much more than the sort of physical environment. I mean, that, that to me, that's sort of at the essence and I'll probably, I, I'm sure... It's, it's the heart of what you do, yeah, essentially. And, and it's kind of what Andrew was saying too, that it shapes you and you shape it. Like it's a two-way street. It's not a fixed thing. Yeah, well, that was the, over time. that's the other thing that I thought is um, probably wasn't made explicit today, but it's sort of implicit in everything that was discussed is this idea of sharing and generosity. Um, and that, you know, our habitats have to be part of that. It has to be a sort of sharing space of one. And that can be, you know, I, I was chatting about this the other day, actually, sort of about, um, about sort of, built form and how that interacts with our public space and I think you know buildings that are very closed off to their public space are ones that often fail and ones that sort of have a generosity or way of kind of interacting uh, with the public realm are ones that are often quite quite successful so and, and it, it does come back to an idea about generosity about the more you give over to your environment the more you'll get back from it and I think what one of the great things about Melbourne and why it's being recognised you know as one of the most livable cities but constantly as a place that people are talking about is this sense of generosity generosity is, is a place where you can ring people up, where you can talk to other people from other professions um, and they're happy to talk to you and see the benefit in doing that. So I think that's, that for me, that's a really essential part of kind of what enriches a really good, in, a good habitat. Um, I, I really enjoyed the idea of um, that Andrew, again, his definition of a good workplace, that it should be thoughtful, inclusive and not aggressive. Yes. <laughs> that's probably like, you do that, you're doing something right, aren't you? Yeah, and, and how those, um, you know, I think uh, there's always, what someone said, uh, I think it was you, Kate, said a wild space too, something sort of slightly untamed. Um, and, sort of, and I think there's something, you know, there's a few conversations there talking about sort of our, um, our natural environment and sort of the parks and gardens of Melbourne and how important that is and, you know, how important it is to this space. I mean, this, this space 
wouldn't wouldn't be anything without its its park around it and how it interacts with that. And I think I think to me the the great things about this pavilion is the subtle things about the fact that there's no threshold that the that the the floor of this just continues straight off to the grass. That you don't step onto it. It doesn't separate itself from that from that space. And actually, the gardens come into the into the pavilion, which I think is a, you know, something that Andrew talked about about how plants might our, our natural environments might come into our built environment. But um, I'm also a walker, like uh, like Rebecca, like Julie, like there's a number of people who talked about that. And I think you know, it's really interesting to think about that idea of uh, human beings as um, as walkers. We're, we're built to walk. That's that's who we are as people. It goes back a long time in our history. It goes back to way back into uh, our indigenous histories um, that used to walk around this this continent and kind of ideas of song lines and learning through that walking. And I think one of the greatest shames of the last sort of 100 years is that cities started to be built for cars and not walking. And now we're starting to return to that idea about who we are. And Jan Gell, you know, the famous, um, the famous uh, urban designer, um, he's influenced a lot in the way uh, the city has evolved. And, and I think it's, great, it's a great reflection on Rob Adams that he looked to people like him to create a space that was welcoming for humans, that was built, uh, our city is built now for people to walk through. It's easy for people to cycle through. And it's that sort of low speed kind of uh, interaction with our environment that makes it a, a really interesting one. And we have to have that. And even just thinking about our environments or our habitats as a series of relationships and experiences rather than a series of spaces and objects, that, you know, it's walking that's powerful. So the habitat just needs to be one that allows you to walk. Or like Alice's amazing um, No Lights, No Lycra, which is just like a really simple idea, really simply enacted, that allows you to have this incredible experience mm. that is, as she said, is transformative for people's lives. It's helping them get through. It's made a... I, I do I do No like I didn't... I do it all the time, NL, NL. And um, it is. It's a massively powerful experience from a really simple tweak of mm. existing things. Just like, how about we switch the lights out? Yeah, and it quite often is those subtle things that can actually really change the way we uh, interact with our environments and with our habitat. So um, I think, you know, I think it's not just up to, you know, it, well, it is actually, it's never just up to architects or designers to create that space. It's never going to happen that way. And, you know, I think, you know, um, the reflection on this space is really um, much more than just the, as I said earlier, much more than just the, the beautiful shelter that it is sitting within a garden. It's all the work that Alexandra do uh, and, and, and Natalie and Robert Buckingham and that go to make this place what it is and all the, all the discussion that happens here and all the events that happen here. And I quite often use the example of Fed Square uh, when people talk about public space or placemaking in that the Fed Square is, you know, architecturally it's okay uh, and, it, and it facilitates a whole lot of things which makes it really good, but it's not, the greatest, it's not the greatest built sort of form in the world, but they curate that public space better than anywhere else in the world and it's what makes it one of the best places in the world is the way it gets used and the way that the, the um, Federation Square Corporation or whatever it's called, um, you know, drive the activities that happen through there from very early in the morning till, you know, right through the night. So um, I think all of us can have a role in making our places better and we should all actively do that and I think if you do do that then you'll you'll find you live in a much better place so, uh. so well, well thank you all for having us and thank you all for coming uh, and do stick around uh, the next one starts at two o'clock yeah so you haven't got long you can probably get something to eat over here I'm sure you can or a coffee and stick around for what's it Ritual. Ritual is the next discussion. Thank you. Uh, sorry, and thank you to all our guests too for joining us. We had some fantastic people up on stage.